This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends, and happy Friday to you. You did it. You made it another week. Congratulations, and welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to BYU Radio. Yes! Yes, thank you. Got a big audience today in the studio. Boy, they're packing them in. What, what is it about Fridays? They just come, they just pack right in. I tell you, it's so difficult to fade out in unison on the applause. And yeah. they do it wonderfully. You know what? It is one of the hardest, I think, uh, issue, not issues, but hardest uh, techniques of, of applauding. And our, our audience is very good at the fade. And uh, they're very quick to pick up the applause. You know what I mean? It's kind of like it's almost... It's almost like you've got a slider that you're sliding the audience noise. And, you know, it's impressive because we don't have an audience sign that flashes no. applause. This is all just from their heart. So we welcome all 250 of you. Sounds about right. Yeah. I, I, I didn't get the official count. So uh, we got a great show. We've, we are going to be talking everything from Trump to religion to Trump again. Really? Yeah. Trump to religion to Trump, because we're going to talk about how religion motivates people. You can talk about Trump, then mm-hmm. religion, then you're going to jump to Trump. Well, many are like, you know, many have never been closer to religion than in the last eight months. <laughs> <laughs> He's been sending more and more people to church. That's what's happening. He, um, uh, we'll, and we'll get into this, but uh, boy, I, you, you, he just has been tweeting. So for the first time in my life, I thought it'd be fun to turn on any any time President Trump sends out a tweet, I it it sends me a message instantly. I haven't I haven't had my notifications turned on for him. For anybody really, cuz I don't like notifications. But I thought it'd be fun to have Trump's <laughs> notification. You just got another one. Oh, I got another one. There we go. Uh, I thought it'd be fun to see Trump's notifications uh, the minute they come out. Really? I saw that on your phone yesterday. I was going to ask you why. First time it's ever happened. No, because I, I, wanted to, I wanted to see exactly what he said, but I wanted to see it when he's saying it. Well, before he corrects the misspelled words? Yeah. Okay. Is he still sending tweets informing the American public that he won the election? Oh, no, that's, that's in every It's speech. a theme. Yeah. It's a theme. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You'd think, you'd think that, yeah, you wouldn't need to do that once you are the president of the United States. But he, I don't know. He just he just doesn't know how to be presidential yet. It must well, there must be a learning curve. In your opinion of what presidential is. Yeah. He's redefining the role. Well, he is. He's actually going to be redefining parties apparently because he's not necessarily loyal to his party. Wrong. Well, he's not part of the party. He just chose that for convenience sake. Right. Remember they oh, yeah. they made them everyone do the pledge so that you won't go run independent? Yeah. If you get knocked out of the primary he, and the and, whole, he could, and he couldn't That was Reince Priebus's idea to keep Trump from running an independent campaign yeah. and ruining Hold on. Everything. Right. Now Reince. It was Reince. What's what's uh, Reince, what's, Reince. He, what's he doing now? Uh, oh, wasn't he in his cabinet? He was chief of staff. Oh, chief of staff. Now where where's Reince now? Uh, I think he's back in Wisconsin. Oh, somewhere. okay. Okay. Um, but he's all over Cor- Corker now in his latest yep. tweet because he went after him. Corker said, eh. Corker, but and you know Corker hasn't decided if he's necessarily going to run, I guess, for a third term, and so President Trump throws him under the bus, 
But, you know, most politicians would keep all of that as like sacrosanct. We don't – I'm not going to mention what you're running for, when you're running for it. Right. And I won't throw you under the bus because I would love you to be reelected again. But with Corker, he's like, that's really funny that you're acting like you're all in, but you're always asking me if you should run again Mm -hmm. because you're not sure. Boom, boom. The truck runs right over Corker. Right. Which is fine. Jeff Flake, he got ran over. Got it, ran, ran over Flake. But uh, McConnell, been run over. Several times. Yeah. Paul Ryan. Again, over. several times, yes. So is this what you do when you're the president? Do you have it's everybody these, intimidated that you're going to be hurt by your own party leader? It's a scorched earth approach to unifying the country. Yeah. Just burn it all down and everyone's going to love you. Here's another crazy thing. I'm driving to work and I listen to a radio station that's local here in Utah. Mm. And they have this brand. Classical 89? Classical 89. Mm. (laughs) Why are you laughing? That's it, exactly. But they have a brand new um, campaign about unifying America. Oh, yeah, yeah. Overcoming the angst of America. Mm. Unifying America. They're going to fix it. But, but all Local of a sudden, I'm thinking now, but now, but it's it's as if we had just gone through a nine eleven tragedy. Yeah, yeah. But it's not a tragedy. It's our president. It's like Tuesday in America. Yeah. yeah. And again, whatever you feel for President Trump, what he's not good at is unifying America. And th- others would say, well, he doesn't need to unify America because he's getting stuff done. Mm. Depends on what you call and define as stuff. Well, healthcare, no, no. But regulation, sure. Oh, sure. Do you still he's done more. He's done more sure. than any president in the history of, of looks the world. Like anything that was signed by Obama got flipped. So, do you still feel that he's doing this sleight of hand and he's actually accomplishing a lot? I don't know. I don't know what I believe anymore because it's not a lot of what he does is just absolutely not in his best interest. So, not in his best interest, mm-hmm. or not in our best interest. <laughs> Both. <laughs> but it's actually like politically, it's just not in his best interest to, to do certain things that he does. Attack his not, own party. Yeah, attack his own party, or um, what was the uh, attack his own party, or attack the media in a moment where there's not a good attack. Like if if you there's a million times attack the the media, right? But he ta- he attacks him when there wasn't even a legit point. Isn't this just how he ran his businesses though? Yeah, but see, yeah, maybe. Is it? But the funny thing is, is, remember, he was sued a lot. He had a lot of issues in his businesses. And so but this is different. This is America. And then it's like he comes back and then tries to make us all believe he's here to unify us. But yesterday you were not unifying us. And the day before you were not unifying us. So I don't know. I just want I want him to learn how to be the president. And learn how to build team and coalition, and I don't think he can do it. But it doesn't mean he can't get stuff done. I just think wrong. <laughs> I just think he's going to get less stuff done. Ah, oh, then then he could have he because he has a lot of power in a way because he really doesn't have an ideology. <laughs> so he 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 got the Republicans to buy into him. But he also has a lot of liberal leanings, so he could just as easily be working the Democrats right now. And he could get a lot done. Yeah, but, but he's, he's getting rid of Obamacare. Can Would you, a liberal do can that? Can you remember the last time he took on a Democrat? 
He, he commented that Chuck Hillary Schumer Clinton? had fake tears that one time. When, yeah, when was that? Like six right. months ago, five months when ago? When they put the immigration bills through. Uh-huh. So he's attacked a Republican pretty much every day. He calls them obstructionists. Yeah, he's a, yeah he does. Them in not, general. They're not cooperating. Right. But he Crooked has Hillary. A, Crooked Hillary. Right? He brings that <laughs> the up person he ran against. Yeah, yeah. So watch. He's, he's the head of the Republican Party, and he beats up Republicans every single day. But he hasn't hit a Democrat for five months, except for Crooked Hillary, hmm. who actually isn't running for anything, and he already beat in an election. But we commented yesterday the Democrats are kind of stepping back, not really. Why would you? He's, part of yeah, this. Well, no, he's like a a drunk man with a sword, and yeah. he's just in the middle of the Republican Party, knifing everybody. There he goes. Oh, oh, geez. Wow, that was from C-SPAN. That was crazy. That was just, yeah. All that was was a C-SPAN meeting <laughs> with one of his cabinets. Anyway, again, I would love him to succeed. I just – I don't know how this happens. So anyway, a fun little uh, rant by me. Well, nice. Uh, so we'll be talking Donald Trump. you feel Trump. better? Uh, not really. Okay. Uh, and we'll, we're, we're going to be talking about religion in a minute. That might make me feel better. Okay, yeah. And how religion motivates you to be better mm. and give and serve. It's pretty interesting how the majority of charitable giving is through religion. And then ask, how does that affect it when we keep seeing these numbers of the decline in yeah, religion? Fewer and fewer people are yeah wanting yeah. to participate. Which I heard someone explain why the uh, solar eclipse might have been such a religious experience for people. Ah, they don't have a religion, so they see something astrological and they're like, "Oh my gosh!" Yeah, something that's incredible, beautiful. Yeah. Which that's it just, was, but, but maybe the sad. reaction. That's sad. Back. Yeah, but again, like I said, I haven't heard people as many people invoking God's name. As I have in the last seven months. I mean, there's a lot of people praying right now. Right. For a variety of reasons. <laughs> One reason is because Jeff's show is going to be on today. Mm. So they're praying for me? Is that what you're saying? Well, they're just praying to get through the day. Oh. I mean that in the best way possible. Your show's on today in the third hour of the Matt Townsend Show. So that will be 11 Eastern. Do the math. <laughs> Okay, so much to cover, so much to talk about. Uh, But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what is going on that we should be paying attention to? Hurricane Harvey projected to hit Texas Friday. So today is a Category 3 storm, the uh, Houston Chronicle reports. The storm, which was previously forecasted to reach only Category 1 status, might now have winds of at least up to 111 miles per hour, according to the National Hurricane Center. It will likely make landfall between Corpus Christi and Magatine. Matagorda Bay, which is down there in that region. Mm. Uh, Harvey is expected to bring heavy rainfall and flooding across southeast Texas. Various coastal areas were given evacuation orders, including Portland, Corpus Christi, and Port Aranus. The state has not been hit by a hurricane since 2008 when uh, Ike, Hurricane Ike, Ooh. we didn't like Ike. I want to uh, be like Ike. Mm. Caused uh, widespread destruction, killed 21 people in Texas, Louisiana, and Arkansas. Harvey will make landfall as a hurricane or projected to Friday night or early Saturday morning along the Texas Gulf Coast. There is a high-pressure system sitting in the west and a high-pressure system sitting over uh, Florida, and it's got Harvey trapped in the middle, so it'll just get on shore and sit there maybe for a week. Oh, just wow. Just churning water. They're looking like 35 inches of rain. People are going to hate Harvey. Yeah, it's bad. By the way, nice weather update. 
That was neat. I don't know that I've ever heard you talk about high pressure. I was watching the Weather Channel before. They have a bunch of people in harm's way. I might as well give them a a few minutes of watching. Uh, Amazon Prime customers are expected to immediately see discounts on Whole Foods staples after Amazon closed its acquisition of the health-oriented grocery chain Monday. Wow. Is it a a health-oriented grocery chain? Well, it's whole. Well, I guess it's expensive. It's expensive, and that's really what they're saying. Prime members will receive special savings and indoor in-store benefits. With more to come, uh, we're determined to make healthy food and organic food affordable for everyone. Everyone should be able to eat whole food, market quality. We will lower prices without compromising the quality and commitment and the high standards of Whole Foods. Excellent. See, so being a Prime member has its benefits. We'll see. Finally, yes. Moving on. Legally, Facebook friends aren't necessarily your friends. What? That Hmm? was the opinion from a Florida appeals court on Wednesday. In a 10-page opinion, the court ruled that Miami-Dade judge Beatrice Butchko didn't need to recuse herself because of an attorney involved in a case in her courtroom is a Facebook friend. Oh. (laughs) The case involved a lawsuit over unpaid legal bills. The Miami Herald reported that the ruling notes that Facebook data mining and algorithms lead people to accept friend requests from people they hardly know or who they are only acquainted with in professional circles. But the fight over Facebook friendship continues, and appeals court in Palm Beach has ruled to the contrary. That means the question over the true meaning of social media friendship could eventually be up to the Florida Supreme Court. Wow. So we needed to go to court to know this. <laughs> well, be friends with people with whom you have a professional relationship on LinkedIn. That's right. Not Facebook. You never know. Yeah, two circles there. Keep them separate. And finally, this is a very uh, selfish story I'm entering here okay. because yeah, of my okay. own personal leanings. Sure. But I love a good car chase on TV. Oh, do you? Right. I did not and know the, that about you. The LA t- LA TV news. It made it. They're an industry leader. They cover the futile, futile efforts of individuals trying to flee from the police. Have you ever seen any of these? Covers? Oh, I love them. Yeah, they're wonderful. Many times I'll be scrolling through Twitter, come across breaking news alert of a car chase that serves to brighten my day with live play-by-play of the action of a pilot or a helicopter-based reporter who attempts to fill the time as a car is weaving through traffic, while all the while trying not to promote the fact that this is truly awesome. Right, they're trying not yeah, yeah. to say yeah, this yeah, is like pretty this, cool. Yeah, they try to play it down, but everyone's riveted. And so they're really trying. KNBC, or KABC in Los Angeles is using a camera system called SkyMap Seven. During an emergency coverage of car chase, the camera system overlays the speed of the car, the street it's on, <laughs> the city that uh, the chase is happening, because jurisdiction Holy changes cow. really quick in Los Angeles. Right, the police jurisdiction, direction the helicopter is traveling versus direction the camera is pointing, because sometimes they flip the camera around backwards and it's confusing. Yeah. So it's all like a heads-up display on your screen as you're watching a car like weave through traffic. I thought they were going to quit following those because it. Wasn't it inducing people to run away from cops because they get that's, that that's 15 the problem. minutes of fame? Yeah, by doing this, you're <laughs> And now they've made it. it this really enhanced um, and, experience. And so hearing all the reporters go, this is horrible. I can't believe he continues to do this, even though every TV station yeah. is getting big ratings. Yeah, but I love the heads-up display. That's incredible. <laughs> and, and, then they, and during rush hour, 
it'll you know they put the camera shot up and it's just roads and you see cars well then they put the names of the roads and they overlay like red green yellow depending on congestion <laughs> oh right? high traffic area right. he's now entering a high traffic area by the way this uh, high speed chase brought to you by Goodyear and then they have like the, the super <laughs> high def zoom in camera they say they can look at license plates and stuff it's like from a football the game oh it's crazy I can't wait to my brother was watching it last night and sent oh, me screenshots boy. speaking of a football game they ought to just have kind of like a, a best of the chase you know, like I'll watch Ooh, yeah. a minute and a half recap yeah. of a baseball right. game. They had to do that with the car chases. But wouldn't most of those well, best Well, they do ofs... that on the like 10 o'clock news oh, okay. after yeah. it's over. Yeah, well, the best ofs are always going to be the last minute. Yeah, when the wreck happens. When the, when the wreck happens, when they've thrown down the spike strips, and then they got to chase the they got to chase the perp. Look at this ho- just unsafe behavior, and then he did it again, and then he ran into this car. Look at, you know, they just the, kept going. They, and, and, going and then there's going. always this race. Uh, this isn't going to end good. This is not going <laughs> to end well. Do you ever see anybody get away? No. No. Really? Because you, you have... Never happened. Usually you have like a police helicopter, then the sheriff's helicopter joins in to help. Right, right. And then you have like four news stations up there circling around. They have rules as to what, what altitude everyone needs to hang at so you don't run Plus, into it. Plus, Grandma taught me you can never outrun a radio. That too. Hmm. You know, Grandma, I, I know of at least one instance where somebody got away. Who? Batman in the film Batman Begins. He did. You had to go In there. that tank. You, you had to go... To a movie, not real, with Batman in a tank. The movie is real. Well, the movie's real. No, it not it's it not, really exists. It, it does, but it's fact, not I have a it real on my phone. story. It? It's a fake story. I would love to watch it. I have it right here, uh, guys. We're doing a show. Here. I'm sorry, I won't watch Batman. Boy, I'll watch it in the other room. Well, I'm glad you brought up the drive-by. That was really good. I thought the segment was going incredibly well until sure. we started talking about a movie. You watch more movies than the two of us combined, and mm-hmm. yet you don't like to talk about them. I don't such, remember any of them. Such a hypocrite. You know why I don't remember them? Because I don't actually watch them. They're on while I'm doing something. So like when I do the dishes, I might have a Netflix thing. So on. when we ask you if you've seen this, you're like, yeah, sure. You're almost yeah. lying. Kind of. But I could never tell you who was in it. You'll, like, you'll name the characters. I'm like, eh. I don't remember any of that. Christian Bale. Yeah, I remember Michael his Kane. name. Yeah, that's it. Morgan Freeman. Mm-hmm. Killian Murphy or Cillian Murphy. Boy. Liam Neeson. Jeff. Ken Watanabe. Jeff, how many times have I told you that you need another hobby? Katie Holmes. Rutger yeah. Hauer. Wow. Okay. Well, see, folks, this is what happens when you let your life get away from you. You, you know all of those names. Directed by Christopher Nolan. It's <laughs> amazing. That is amazing. That's why you have a movie show. In just two hours, if we make it through the next hour and a half, I mean. Tom Wilkinson. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the best you can be. And uh, we'll even throw in a little movie here and there. Up next, we're talking religion, how it can motivate you to give more. Today, the world is facing one of the greatest humanitarian emergencies in history, with mass starvation threatening millions of people in South Sudan, Nigeria, Somalia, and Yemen. While an unmatched refugee crisis continues in Syria, there is a lot of need uh, for people around the world, and a lot of need for those who are willing to give and serve. And religion can be a big motivator 
uh, for that giving and for that service to help us understand the role religion plays in charitable giving and service uh, is Dr. David King. He's with us this morning. David is the Karen, Lu- uh, Karen Lake Buttry Director of Lake Institute on Faith and Giving, as well as an assistant professor of philanthropic studies uh, at Indiana University. And we're honored to have you here. David, thank you for your time. Thanks, Matt. Privilege. This is, uh, I think this is such an important topic because there, there's a lot of need in the world and there is already a lot of giving going on. And is it, is it true that the majority of that giving is coming through religious organizations? Yeah, it is true. In fact, uh, the Giving USA study that the, that the School of Philanthropy and the Giving USA Institute puts out each year tracks uh, sort of where the biggest recipients uh, of uh, of giving uh, go to on an annual basis, and it's true that 32 percent of all Americans' giving goes to religious organizations. And that religious organization definition is actually quite narrow. So really, that's only houses of worship, denominations, missionary societies, and religious media. Wow, 32 percent. Yeah, and the bulk of that is congregational giving. So almost a third of all giving goes to religious congregations. And, and missionary society. Now, but and that's that's amazing here in the United States. But it se- it seems like uh, charitable giving worldwide too is also going through religious organizations. Yeah, I think that's the case. And and as we know through a, a lot of work, you know, we can have a story of, of decline and the rise of the nuns and duns here in the United States and even in Western Europe. But but we see really a, a vibrancy of, of religious faith around the world. Uh, and a lot of that, particularly on the ground in local communities, and the community development and relief work, humanitarian work, is done by local faith communities and larger religious nonprofits. Now, why, again, why do you see that? Why is this happening through religion? We hear so much talk about government agencies, government entities, and I'm sure they're doing a lot of giving as well, or charitable uh, you know, service as well. But really, it seems like the world still is being moved through religion. Yeah, I think for a couple of reasons. A, religion has been on the ground and doing this work for forever, or for, for hundreds and even thousands of years. And so uh, these organizations have been rooted and have deep roots within these communities. And so they're local. They're indigenized. It's the, the local people who are doing this work. But more broadly, it's it's the fact that these historically these organizations, whether they're large organizations like the LDS Church or World Vision or Compassion, have really professionalized and are doing this work at at uh, really uh, significant levels, and are uh, appreciated by these international and government agencies like the World Bank or the United Nations that recognize many of these groups as doing significant work. And mm. finally, they have to have that connection on the ground. It's the motivation of donors and frontline humanitarian workers, the reason they give their lives, their money, their time, their treasure to this work is that their faith really compels them to make a difference in the world. And I guess that history um, and, and, and that commitment to that deeper uh, purpose is such a big driver. Talk about the history, or I mean, like what religions tell us about giving, um, I guess on a global scale, because every major um, religion has some entire faith uh, set, some doctrine that comes from um, their scripture to, that, that induces or pushes us to, to be more charitable. 
Yeah, I think with all the differences that our traditions have um, in, in conflict and even leading to conversation about what makes our different traditions unique, uh, one of the commonalities, and it comes across in different ways, is this clear emphasis on giving uh, and service and particularly a care for the poor, the widow, the oppressed, the stranger. And across our faith traditions, particularly the Abrahamic traditions that have some of that same common uh, roots and conversations, you know, as they grew, it's really a focus, um, whether it's a sense of obligation and duty or, you know, clearly as a commandment to care for the least of these. It comes from the Hebrew Scriptures, from the mouth of Jesus, uh, from the Hadiths and the wisdom of, of the Prophet Muhammad. You know, and so within particular communities, caring for those with around us in our neighborhoods and communities, whether it's leaving uh, uh, leaving crops on the edge of a field for those to come and, mm. and to reap and pick that up, or if it's caring for um, the poor through, through through particular types of charity in monastic communities, this goes back to the earliest uh, parts of our faith. It's it's interesting too how. Our own leaders, um, political leaders, including Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, President Bush, they've all um, cited the Jewish phrase tikkun olam. Can you talk to us about that? What, is, what does that mean? Yeah, this, this phrase tikkun olam goes back deeply into the, the Jewish tradition uh, and broadly just means to repair or heal the world. So um, at its broadest level, it's, it's not simply to care for the least of these, but it's to really um, to, to make the world a, a different, better uh, place. And so things, even from uh, creation care and stewardship of the earth, really to making a difference to sort of having um, basic human rights and change broadly. And, and these phrases, whether they're uh, phrases like tikkun olam that comes out of a, a progressive Jewish tradition or other Christian um, Muslim t- ideals uh, that, that read sort of reach deeply into our faith, have been adapted and adopted by political uh, leaders uh, from across the theological or political spectrum uh, to really as touchstones of what I think really makes uh, the American um, society so generous. What happens if, if, we, if these faith traditions started diminishing either in size or attendance or money um, how how big of an impact would that have on the humanitarian work around the world? Oh, I think it's huge. We have billions of dollars that are being invested by our, our global um, uh, sort of uh, nations across the world in this type of humanitarian work, and it's it's significant. So we don't want to downplay the investment that that comes from governments and other international bodies. But I think as a motivator for giving. And where some of the largest of these NGOs and even small grassroots agencies are driven by faith, and there are other billions upon billions of dollars that come into this work um, because of our, our you know, faithful donors and local faith communities. And so it would have a, a drastic impact. And oftentimes those faith-based communities and organizations are really the ones who can have credibility on the ground. Uh, if you're in a village in Africa part of Southeast Asia, um, it's being able to have a conversation with the priest or the imam to have that buy-in that really allows them to say, you know, that we share some commonalities that allow us to to, to make change happen. Hmm. Do, do these organizations end up spending the money 
differently, uh, more um, in, a, in a more effective way. I notice uh, with the LDS church, um, like the minute I – because when I was a lay leader um, over a group of people and I had funds coming from the church that I know had been donated through a tithe, I remember feeling this incredible sense of responsibility to not waste a penny. And so I wonder if if when money comes through the faith versus maybe through a tax or something else, if we don't spend it differently or serve people differently with it. Yeah, that's a great point. And I guess I really don't know. Uh, and some of our uh, the largest you know nonprofits NGOs are, are very conscious of that overhead and how they actually spend those resources wisely. Uh, but I do think because we have that motivation to be stewards of people's gifts and stewards of what God has given to us that are then put into our hands to do this work, I think there is a conscious reflection on how we can uh, use these gifts most effectively and be good stewards. I think that larger stewardship theme uh, not only is a motivator for giving, but it's also a motivator for how we do our work. Mm. And um, in your research, do you... How does it affect the giver? What are you seeing that it, it you know for the faithful person that is giving this money to benefit others? Um, what impact does it have on them? Well, I think it has a, a really significant impact. So Christian Smith, who's a sociologist at Notre Dame, has got a an amazing study called the Science of Generosity, and he really points out that. Um, not only does this make one feel good, and there are actual chemicals going off in your brain that we know it, 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 people are happier when they're able to give than when they receive. And it's counterintuitive from an economic perspective, like if you make a gift and that money is no longer yours. But it actually makes us much happier, much more fulfilled. Besides the chemicals that are going off uh, in our brain, I think it really uh, has a way of building a relationship. A racial relationship with somebody else or a community across the world. It helps us to get to know what's going on in other parts. It makes us more informed. It helps us to care. And in many ways, those those first gifts oftentimes lead us into being more informed, better citizens, uh, better advocates uh, for the work that needs to be done around the world. But it has a significant effect, I think, on our faith, too. So I think the, even sort of that first giving or that continual giving is a practice. It's a faith practice. It's a part of, uh, as we talk about at Lake Institute, faith formation and discipleship. And so it actually allows us to grow in our faith. And too often we uh, put money uh, as, a, as a taboo that's separate from or distant from our faith practices. But through all of our faith traditions, it's central. Hmm. Uh, and if we try to make a sacred-secular divide, I think too often we... Um, we set apart some of the great gifts that we can receive through building our own generous spirit. That's powerful. And also such a powerful way, too, of, uh, uh, yeah, of blending the world in, and the faith. Um, sometimes that's hard to do. I think you were alluding to that, that we always see them as different instead of seeing them as one whole. Powerful stuff. We'll continue this journey with Dr. David King as we discuss how religion motivates people to give and serve the benefits and uh, the, the, the insight we can gather by exercising our beliefs, our faith, you know, with our pocketbook as well. And when we come back, we'll also be talking about how you can serve as well. And, and we see a lot more of that going on. This is the Matt Townsend Show. The goal here is to help you be the good in the world. We'll continue that journey in just a minute. 
We are discussing how religion motivates people to give and serve. And, uh, boy, the data you know, seems to be irrefutable. According to David P. King, he is the Karen Lake Buttry Director of Lake Institute on Faith and Giving, as well as an assistant professor of philanthropic studies within the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, and wrote a wonderful article on how religion motivates people to give and to serve that you can find in theconversation.com. David, again, thanks for being with us and uh, and just opening our eyes to the power of uh, of giving through and, and and the power really of religion still. Sure, it's just uh, I think it's something we all know, but it's really interesting to kind of really see how it affects us. How do most of religions, these religions, get the money uh, and, and collect the money? How does the money come in? Well, the majority, that 32% we alluded to earlier that comes into uh, religious organizations each year, at least in America, often comes just through individuals. So a lot of nonprofits are uh, building major gift campaigns, capital campaigns, but for most of our faith communities in the U.S., it comes through just individual uh, gifts on a weekly basis from you or from me. Um, uh, that may be oftentimes different as our congregations then oftentimes funnel that support up to our larger organizations, whether it's the larger LDS church or the Presbyterian church, the Catholic church, that oftentimes have social services, missions, humanitarian work that goes out around the world. Uh, our faith-based nonprofits do that even uh, even more differently, oftentimes going directly to uh, people who um, have that connection with a particular type of need or a particular region. I say one place that's really growing as individuals asking for support themselves. Hmm. Uh, the LDS Church knows this well, as far as you know, having to raise support for someone on mission. That's across the board as people are doing short-term mission trips in increasing numbers and raising their own support. They're raising support for campus ministry work around the country, um, all different forms. But uh, I think this is actually a really interesting time. The traditional forms of the tithe or um, giving through religious services on a regular basis. Those rhythms are changing, and we're in a really interesting time to see what what will happen with faith-based giving. Oh, yeah. And I guess, too, because there's all of these GoFundMe accounts. And, I mean, in yeah. a weird way, now there's a, a different competition for charity, right? The, the charity used to be assumed the issues would be taken care of either through the church, the family, or the government. But now with a GoFundMe account, um, people are becoming independent charities. Yeah, and I think you really hit on the point. It's this, this notion of trust. And we really had in our society, whether it was oftentimes our, you know, our faith community, it, it was the, the church or the synagogue around the um, you know, main street square, uh, that, that trust is, is eroding slightly, but also it's really that sense of competition you pointed to. There are so many faith-based nonprofits or just nonprofits in general. Uh, and many, particularly millennials, uh, boomers on down, too, are thinking about where can I make the most difference? Uh, where can I be engaged? And oftentimes our religious communities may not have done their, uh, the homework to be able to make the case of why they're um, the, best, uh, the best provider, the best uh, uh, use uh, steward of our gifts. There, there, there's been a, a lot of talk about um, how people can, for example, get on social media. They can become part of a cause on social media. They even might like a movement or a cause, and that actually makes them feel like they've done something, and yet all they've done is push a like button. Um, do, do, do you sense that, that this – is there a benefit to serving and maybe – 
you know, writing the check um, versus actually, is there a difference when we actually go and do the service? Like when we go on the mission trip with uh, our church and go build a school in Paraguay? I think so. And I think this is how uh, our generations are making this shift. And so we know that younger generations, uh, Gen Xers and millennials in particular, want to engage to do something, to volunteer and serve before they will give financially. So actually uh, clicking that like button, being an advocate or sharing something on your Facebook wall is usually a first step uh, that then might lead someone to to serve and volunteer. And often that's through their... um, they're peer groups, so it's, it's an invitation by someone like, hey, hey, go on a mission trip with me, or hey, let, we're doing this on Saturday morning. Um, a, a big example of this is a shift towards where a lot of nonprofits uh, are doing, uh, you know, 5Ks, half marathons together, and it's actually doing that work and training uh, with a group. Hmm. You raise support uh, through the run. So it's, it's really communal. It's peer-to-peer based, but that service oftentimes then leads to a gift. So people are really still interested and willing to give, but oftentimes uh, the front door is through service, uh, whereas a generation ago, oftentimes we were glad to let the professionals do the work and write a check and uh, know that this good stuff would happen. Yeah, there's something powerful about this new generation, these, this next generation. Um, I, I've seen it here. A lot of uh, youth... 18 down to 15 to 18 year olds go to in the LDS church what's called especially for youth where they they go to universities um, and there's organized lessons and classes and places to socialize and they hang out for like a week but now a lot of them are going abroad to um, ah. it's one thing to come here and learn with a bunch of other LDS people on some campus in Utah or wherever, but now they're all going to foreign countries. They're investing more money. They have to raise their own money, but they're coming back with what I think you hit on earlier, that idea that they're, they're more open now. They're more, I mean, they're much more open. They see the differences in the cultures. They're less judgmental. In the end, that that is, it seems like one of the greatest outcomes of, this charitable giving and the, and the, and the convergence of charitable giving and religion. Yeah, I think you're right. And a lot of scholars of mission are going to, are having a, a big debate about uh, what's the right um, way to approach uh, things like short-term missions or trips like this abroad, because uh, financially uh, you may not get the biggest bang for your buck. You can, uh, yeah. you could make a gift and build a habitat house in Paraguay a lot cheaper than you can fly a bunch of teams over there to do that work that can be done uh, better, more effectively, and, and maybe more sustainable mm. by local workers. But it's an open question about if those teens come back from Paraguay and they, they have a glimpse of what a broader world looks like, maybe that's the opening eyes moment they need to really uh, live their life in a different way and have long, sustained giving service. Maybe they pick a different career or vocation because of what they've seen. Uh, it's an open question, actually, uh, you know, which way is best, and yeah. we don't really know. But I, I tend, after my own experiences abroad, in those types of settings, to think that it really had a lasting impact on how I see the world and how I give and serve and, and, and even work. Um, so I tend to believe that they're really vital experiences. There was a recent study about... Um judging about people judging poor 
people, people that are taking donation or charity or um, that are t- that are on um, government subsidies, and the judgment that is that is kind of cast upon them. And one of the things that the study found was that it's the most the people that are most likely to judge someone as lazy for receiving charitable or like government subsidies are the Christians. Um, and I and it uh, so how does because it's interesting because here here the Christians are are so giving and the and the Christians are so judgmental about the giving I guess statistically help us uh, understand what's going on there. Well, I wish I could. Uh, I think uh, that's the flip side, uh, and there's so much uh, within our faith, but also within our culture that that frames what good work is or uh, you know phrases that we think are. Uh, you know, in Scripture, like, God helps those who help themselves. It's, you know, it's a great phrase, but mm-hmm. it's not biblical. So um, I think a lot of that cultural, that American exceptionalism, that pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, that it oftentimes seeps into uh, who we are as Americans. It often gets uh, crossways with who we are as um, as Christians or people of faith. I think our, our uh, the practices and traditions of our faith around charity— uh, take Pope Francis as a great example, uh, really lead us to an education and formation about uh, some of the deeper causes for why poverty exists and how we can help. And instead of simply saying, this person's lazy, maybe we can ask bigger questions about uh, what's happening there that led this person into this particular uh, context. And I think what our faith would really push us to do is build relationships. And that's where giving really has its strongest asset is uh, uh, not simply giving, uh, writing the check, and turning away, but looking someone in the eye, uh, not just giving a handout, the whole teaching a person to fish mentality. How can we do a real transformational change? And I think that sort of levels or layers to giving that we can build upon where we can continue to grow. Uh, And so all giving in that sense may not be the same. Uh, There are deeper levels of giving for larger change that our faith really draws us to. And um, we see, it seems like uh, fewer of the of the young adult age group are interested in religion. It seems like we're kind of losing uh, a, a bigger percentage of people that aren't turning to religion. Is It seems like charity and charitable donation giving, this may be a way to reinvigorate uh, certain age groups to come back to the faith. Yeah, I think you're really right. And I so so when this question always comes up when we work with congregations or uh, nonprofits about their um, charitable giving and, and thinking about the next generation, uh, I tell them not to give up. That a lot of uh, this generation may be moving away from institutional religion. You know, we do know there is a rise of the nuns; those who would say that they would they would check none of the above. Uh, when asked on the survey what would be their religious tradition. But we also know at the same time those nuns are not um, are not atheist or agnostic. They have a, a religious faith or spirituality. They're asking questions. They're continuing to um, be and they ask uh, and live spiritual lives. And so I think if we focus our giving and charity and service uh, not simply within the walls, of the faith community to say, please give here. We know what to do best. It continues to help uh, solidify the institution. 
but focuses outward and says, look what we're doing. Please join with us. Where are your passions? We're going to follow you there and engage out in the world. That's what this next generation wants. And oftentimes that service and engagement, not sort of a retrenchment mentality, is a perfect way to engage people with their questions about faith. So good. So good. David, thank you for your time. Thank you for your insight. Um, it's power, powerful to see how uh, religion that we think is kind of so archaic, so, you know, so outdated is such a powerful source of um, of really of movement, of, of action and, and hope, of solutions. Um, it's real. It's real. Faith in action, really. We'll continue the journey, folks. The goal is to help uh, all of us become the good in the world. And how better to do that than just giving? This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Man, some crazy news for Samsung uh, lovers. I mean, I guess it's it doesn't have to directly ruin your day. No, but the air the the one of the the CEO of Samsung is was just basically sentenced to five years in prison. Now it's a bribery scandal oh, over yeah. there. It helped. It was one of the uh, causes that led to their president to be impeached, and now he's facing charges because they're you know the whole situation that's going on but it's just interesting you have this major electronics company they make all kinds of products yeah. but they're such they're so ingrained with the uh, the South Korean economy that they're the scandal is reaching into all different parts of of life over there like imagine imagine Mark Zuckerberg sentenced for 5 years that's just like crazy right but if you know if there's corruption right watch out and if it moves into governmental circles so Which this this did this end up toppling the the uh, president as well. <laughs> Boy, it's great, right? So, yeah, when this is going on, phones were melting yeah, down I- as they were in court dealing with this, and so then you have the government in turmoil, and you have North Korea doing what they're doing with the government in South Korea and this churn going on with their government moving in and out. J. Y. Lee guilty of bribery, embezzlement, and perjury. According to the reports and his lawyer, they're confident that it will be overturned. Of course. Hmm. But they then had this chairman do the perp walk in his suit. Oh, yeah. To get on the bus to go to the. <laughs> they're big on shame. Yeah. In, in that region. So well, who uh, doesn't love a little shame? A little shame. It's amazing. That's incredible. By the way, his name, Jay Lee, hmm. J.Y. Lee, which tells us goes back to the Robert Lee. Ah, you don't need to. So ESPN so the, basically took Robert Lee, the reporter, the play-by-play play 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 yeah. announcer, off the air, off the air because of it might look his, bad, like Robert E. Lee. His name's too close to Robert E. Lee after yeah. the Virginia situations. Now this guy, his name might be too close to Robert E. Lee, and that's why he's been moved. Wait, no, there's a bribery scam. <laughs> no, yeah, that's, oh, that's right. I think it was scam. the perjury. Yeah, I think it was the uh, notebook. Is that no the Samsung Note? Yeah. Seven. That's the problem. Anyway, folks, it is a crazy world we live in. And so be careful who you ha- who you hold up as, you know, as, as the people that you look up to. Be careful. There are people are human. 
We make mistakes. So instead, maybe as we learned a little bit earlier, it might be better to focus on your faith than, you know, some CEO or CFO or baseball player or athlete. Anyway, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Hour number two of the program. Welcome to the Dr. Matt Show. Dr. Matt here along with Terry and Jeffrey. The gang's all here. It is Friday. Uh, Jeff, a quick update on your weight loss. Where are we? Where do we stand? I've got 0.7 pounds to go He uh, to reach the goal. 0.7 pounds. Two weeks. Just go get a haircut. Still got another two weeks. Just shave your back. Yeah. <laughs> and get a haircut. You're set, man. You are so set. Well, congratulations. You, you've got two weeks to lose 0.7 pounds? Yeah. So I, I had the thought, well, maybe I could just start eating more of what I want to kind of sustain where I'm at. No, no, no. But no. then my wife said, just start a new game. Yeah, she's at brilliant. the same time. Yeah, smart woman. Put down another thirty bucks. Yeah, she's see a if keeper. you can win that one. I should have done this a week ago. No, what it really is is she does not want you to gain any more weight. <laughs> so Please. I have a feeling you will be doing this forever. This is great. It's working. Mm. And you're really – I wouldn't look at it as like 0.7 pounds. I would look at it as um, one meal with E. coli away from mm. being there. You just need a good weekend cleanse and you'll be there. Mm-hmm. Okay. I find the weekend to be the hardest time to stay on these type of diets. Do we have any Taco Bell stories to go with this? No, nope, not Because that's what I think of when I think of – Nope. E. coli and cleansing. <laughs> wow. No, it's There's an endorsement. Just don't eat all weekend. Actually, you've got two weeks, so just pace yourself. If you just could lose uh, a tenth of a pound every other day, you're fine. <laughs> you are fine. Well, congrats. That's incredible. Today, by the way, too, we're going to be talking um, with Benjamin Hardy uh, about things you need to recover from every day. Mm. Right, it's like we the Matt Townsend show. Yeah, occasionally, yes. Right after the show, I knew I I needed to recover from doing the show, but apparently, so do our listeners. And by the way, there is a time to turn off all of this stuff. I haven't listened to cable news for about four months. Can't do it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, mom. Thank you, because it's it. And by the way, I feel so much better. So much better. I let Terry do it. I don't watch cable news either. <laughs> Good. But you seem to know. You're in the know. Well, I watch a nightly news program. They give you 10 minutes and you know what you need to know. And then, and then you... you do some reading and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But you stay away from these people that bring on a panel of nine people to yell at each other. Yeah. It's no – there's no purpose to that. No purpose. It's exhausting. And then at the end, you just want to grab a pool noodle and hit your kid. No, I want to do that normally. Yeah, it's not hitting. Him. It's you're, not motivating. You're having by fun. You're playing with your child. Right. Well, I mean, it's hitting, but but it's fun. He loves it. He right. laughs and comes back for more. It's have, more retribution. I don't know if it's fun. Have but you it's had fun. that moment as a parent where you you're wrestling with your kid and then he gets hurt? 
But you were just ha- we were all having fun, and then all of a sudden, mom comes in like, "What? Yeah, why are you hurting my child? Have you had that yet?" Usually, she walks in and like they're like pounding on my head. Yeah, and like my daughter. Yeah, she's, she's like get, ten months old. She tough. does this too. Yeah, does she still do it drooling? Oh, constantly. Yeah, yeah. Whenever I would hurt my friends playing with them, I would just make them laugh. Yeah, so that it. the crying would stop and I wouldn't get in trouble. That's a neat distraction, by the way, and that is. That's kind of unique to to uh, to humans, where we you can hurt somebody, and then if I can just get you to laugh, your brain will actually go to the laugh center of your brain and forget that I just drilled you. Hmm. Then you start just that's why you that's why you're funny, Jeff, because you've learned you've hurt so many people <laughs> that you've learned to just I gotta have comedic relief. That's cool. So uh, uh, we'll be learning about the things you need to recover from every day, like in exercise. It's not – you can't do the same exercise every day and derive the same benefit. At some point, you need to recover. Let your body recover. So we will get to that. Plus, holy cow, a woman's plan to sell her husband on Facebook backfires. Jeff's going to be covering that story. And we will have a special, special musical number. Oh, nice. From the Social Media Association. Uh, name of the song, Let's Get Social. Hmm. Our favorite song, I think, on the entire show, ever, of all time. Awesome. You know, sometimes I feel like one of those meetings would be more fun than the meetings that we have here. What do you mean? Just song and, you know, we're being forced to clap and chant along oh. at key points in the song. Yeah. Let's get social, social Social media. We'll play it and then we'll help you. Well, you'll understand what Jeff means. It's, it's so invigorating. I feel re- I'm pumped up after. Pumped up. It's kind of a train wreck. What do you mean? No, it's not. You'll, you'll hear it. No. Yeah. But you're saying this song is better than our meetings here at BYU Broadcasting? I would want to be there to witness it, to oh, witness yeah. the horror that would of be fun. it. Yeah. I love all meetings. Just once. I love a good meeting. Terry tried to hold one the other day. I attempted to, and then we didn't actually have one. And then I went down. I just sat amongst the producers at their desk, and yeah. we we're like there for fifteen minutes talking. Anyway, it's so. more effective. That and way. you're losing like half of them, aren't you? Or some uh, of them? The, the, no, they're all coming back. They're right? all coming oh, okay. back. Yeah. This is this will be the first time we've been able to retain any of our producers. Usually, yeah. we burn through them every semester. I don't know why. Just the site. Well, well, that means in about six months we're going to lose everybody at the same time. Oh. Thanks for being negative. Yeah, just trying to point that out. I thought something good was happening. Uh, let's get to the headlines with Terry. Terry, what's going on that we should be paying attention to? Texas is bracing for the arrival of Hurricane Harvey, storm that meteorologists continue uh, to say could turn into a slow-moving monster that batters the state for several days. Harvey is expected to make landfall as a Category 3 hurricane late Friday or early Saturday, and uh, AccuWeather... You've heard of that service. Accuator. They say it may be nothing short of a flooding disaster for Texas. Forecasters wow. say that after it moves ashore, Harvey is likely to end up trapped between two areas of high pressure, keeping it stalled over Texas for up to five days, dumping as much as 35 inches of rain on parts of the state. Highways throughout the state were clogged with residents fleeing further inland, while those who chose to stay were stocking up on bottled water, filling sandbags, and boarding up windows to protect their homes. Yeah, it's getting ugly. And you can just watch all these, you know, reporters trying to put themselves in danger so you can watch it on TV. (laughs) 
Uh, don't you love that picture of the reporter leaning into the wind? It is windy. As it you is. Can see so wet here. I was just hit by a duck. I think it was a duck. The question of some if some speech isn't worth defending is dividing members of the American Civil Liberties Union after protests in Charlottesville, Virginia left one person dead earlier this month. The ACLU's controversially has helped convince a judge to allow the march in Charlottesville, which was attended by neo-Nazis, neo-Confederates, and white supremacist groups. Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe blamed the ACLU for creating a powder keg in the city. Whoa. So now within the, the, the group, they're like, how is all speech worth protecting? Yeah. What, well, how far well, should how we go far with do we this? Go? By the way, that is potential presidential candidate Terry McAuliffe. Really? Who used to be that used to be really tight with the Clintons and still is probably. Yeah. yeah. So interesting. He's taking on the ACLU in Virginia. Hmm. So we'll see how that goes. Snapchat app, your uh, your favorite app, Matt. You yeah. use that constantly. You have your snaps out Snap every day. On. Snapchat plans to host original scripted content through Snapchat shows before the end of the year. Thank Variety goodness. reports the announcement from the company's head of content, Nick Bell, shows uh, follows Snapchat's. There you go. Snapchat's successful rollout of a TV companion programs for shows like The Voice and The Bachelor. The company had been hesitant to break into scripted content because production is expensive, but that is an interesting next juncture for the company, they say, and the app could create fundamental new medium for entertainment. The new shows will be tailored to Snapchat's mobile platform, running approximately three to five minutes in length. Um... Interesting. That's good because that's about all the TV I get to watch in one sitting before I have to move on to something else. next thing. Yeah. Is that... It just seems like... That seems strange. I mean, it seems like what they ought to go to is Vine. Like, go start making Vines. Well, but make Snapchat. Yeah, but... Make it on Snapchat. I know, but you could get all the content for free. Well, you could, except Vine's dying. Well, but... I know, but so now what they're going to do is invest in it, and it might die. That reminds me. I think I had to pick up some red vines this weekend. Well, that's good. That'll go against your diet. Yeah. But, you know, good shot. Finally. Yes. They got the McGregor Merriweather or Mayweather fight this weekend. Oh, boy. Here a, we go. It's a big story because yeah. all the money and the attention on it. So boxing champ Floyd Mayweather Jr. set to fight mixed martial arts star Conor McGregor in Las Vegas Saturday night. And uh, about that the Association of Ringside Physicians considers a dangerous mismatch. Floyd is 49 or no, considered the best boxer of his generation, while this will be uh, his Irish opponent's first time in a boxing ring. Oh, boy. Never been in a boxing ring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Larry Lovelace, chief of the Association of More Than 100 Fight Doctors, says he's surprised the bout was even sanctioned. The thing I really fear, truly fear, is that someone is going to get really hurt in this fight. <laughs> Isn't that what everybody is hoping will happen? Yeah. It's unheard to have a guy make his pro debut against a world champion, Lovelace tells the LA Times, adding that he is stunned by the decision to relax regulations and allow the fighters to wear lighter 8-ounce gloves, making them capable of inflicting more damage on each other. Bob Bennett, executive director of the Nevada State Athletic Commission, which sanctioned the fight, disagrees. He says McGregor is the stronger, more powerful opponent. He's 12 years younger than Mayweather. Bennett says he's offended by suggestions that the commission was influenced by the fact that it will receive 1.2 million share of ticket sales wow. for the fight. Wow. Another element? Yeah. McGregor's currently eight pounds heavy. You have to make weight. How do you, lo- mm. how do you lose eight pounds, Jeff? It only takes three weeks. His team is confident that in the 48 hours or whatever since the report I saw, that he's going to be able to drop that weight. 
How? I don't, well, there's we're not going to get into it. Uh, but we're going to need to take an organ. <laughs> Cauliflower rice. <laughs> there's ways. No, yes. Go to the bathroom a lot. Eight pounds. So someone could get severe. Some, McGregor could get They said someone could get – McGregor's going to get hurt. Yeah. So they did go with the lighter gloves. Lighter gloves, which means less padding. But honestly, honestly, yeah. hasn't McGregor taken more hits than Mayweather has in his life? Maybe. Like Mayweather – and every hit Mayweather took was with a glove yeah. and th- what – 80% of the time is with the heavier glove, probably. McGregor but, has taken elbows, knees, yeah, heads, shoulders, knees, and toes. But actually, in the long run, the MMA style of fighting is safer than boxing. Oh, is it now? Yeah. Yeah, because boxing is, let's stand here and punch each other in yeah, the face. sure. And MMA, it's like, let's get you to give up. Yeah, let's right? hurt so you so bad. So there's a whole variety of techniques you can use rather than punching someone in the face. See, this wouldn't be as fun uh, if it was an MMA fight because... Well, that could be over in 30 seconds. Well, yeah, or it could just be over the minute you've got a hold of my leg, I'm tapping out. Now, a boxing match could be over just as fast, it, but usually not because you can defend yourself from getting punched in the face easier than, you know, Do you think we'll, and, we'll see any clips from this? I mean, is there going to be— cause, I don't know, because usually they embargo those things, and all you see is still photographs. and Maybe we'll have, like, uh, court reporters drawing pictures yeah. of the fight. <laughs> the crayons out. <laughs> McGregor took a hit. Uh, by the way, and we don't usually mention this um, because I don't believe in the lottery. Sorry. It, it, it exists. exists. It's a real thing. I don't believe it should be something you should invest your money in. Oh. Oh, so you don't, you don't, you don't think participating is a yeah. good plan? Mm-hmm. Okay. I just think it's – But many people, as we've talked about on the show, see it as their uh, a retirement. No, sure. Except, it's an attempt at a retirement. Except most of them are depressed – Dejected yeah. and oh, hate yeah. their life at that point, yeah. even though they won. So a 53-year-old Massachusetts hospital worker is now worth $758 million. More like 250 but go on. Well, mm-hmm. didn't she? No, the whole ball Powerball prize was nine hundred. million. Yeah, but once million. the Fed taxes, and the state take their piece. $425 million after taxes. Okay, so 400 So what do you do with $425 million? Well, you quit your job. This lady did. Yeah. Good for her. Well, she was a nurse, so. Ooh, really good for her. Yeah. Maybe she, after 30 years, maybe she just got tired of, you know, bedpans and that, stuff like that. I couldn't, I wouldn't quit my job. Really? I mean, I'd quit if, I'd, no. <laughs> I would just do it a lot worse. Really? <laughs> yeah, I don't. <laughs> I would just like, I'm not even showing up. Today. What's the threat? You know, you have all the money. Who cares? Yeah, $425 million, mm. half a billion dollars nearly. And if you invest that right, in 10 years, you could have three times that. Or if you just put it in a bank and forgot about it, you'd still have a lot of money. Yeah. The, you, first, you, yeah. the first 425 mil is the hardest. That's what I found. Didn't you find that? The first yeah. $425 million, hardest to make. It's the next the, – the next $425 are going to just – she'll have that in a couple See, of See, and she mm-hmm. could be smart and save it and then the next generation, her kids would just spend it all and lose it all. Oh, I know. Because that's what happens. That's what exactly what happens. Generational money, it's gone. Give it all to charity. She should put $25 million in the bank and then give the rest to charity. Yeah, that's what I would do. Probably not. Uh, okay, Jeffrey, you've got to give us some insight on this woman who's planning to sell her husband on Facebook. Have you ever heard of misophonia? Mis- misophonia? Misophonia. <laughs> 
Well, it's a it's a sensitivity to certain noises. Yes. Okay. So apparently, this woman couldn't handle listening to her husband um, crunching over and over and over again, and he was kind yeah. of doing it to egg her on. Yeah, he was, yeah. because he knows that she has this phobia. Uh, so he's playing this video with somebody crunching over and over and over again. Um, and he, let's see, he said that he played it over and over. She went upstairs and then I just saw this notification on Facebook saying I was for sale or something. Hmm. Yep. Teresa had put Rob up for sale on Facebook. Teresa shared a picture of her husband along with the description listing his brilliant qualities. I have a 33-year-old husband that is no longer needed due to getting on my nerves, she wrote. I don't want no money. He is free. He's free. He is house-trained and toilet-trained. Oh, good. First to collect. But Teresa's act of rage didn't go quite as she'd planned, hoping for some sympathetic reactions from people who understood the struggle of a deeply aggravating husband. Teresa was instead flooded with offers to take Rob off her hands. I'll take him. Within hours, (laughs) the post had more than 300 likes and plenty of comments from single women who said they'd be happy to take Rob in. Oh. And it made Cute. me uh, – it reminded me of one of our favorite songs. What? what from the earth? corporate world. And here it is. Let's get social. Social. Get social <laughs> uh, the great Let's Get Social let's get anthem. Social. So I don't know if social. social media was created for this purpose. Yeah, to get rid of your spouse. To sell your significant other. Isn't love great? Where in one moment of rage, she's put her husband on the block and he's getting offers. It's yeah. It's kind of scary. I have, a, I have a rule that I use with my clients. Never tell your spouse what you would divorce them over. Really? Yeah. I'm not into that. Because the minute you tell them, now they know. We shouldn't even – we don't even say the D word. No, either do we. In our house. And that was weird because I used to be a divorce mediator. And my kids would say, Dad, what do you do? And I'm like, I can't tell you. Like, why, are you a spy? Nope. But I do this thing to terminate long-term commitments. Really? What's I'm about, I'm about to you. do that uh, with my cable contract. You're going to divorce your cable contract? Yeah. Going to end that long-term relationship. You know what? We probably ought to record this. We probably ought to talk about it more on the show. When is this going to go down? Hopefully this weekend, unless there are any free previews. <laughs> In which case, I'll see what movies are on. Yeah, you'll just prolong it one more month. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, let's be a part of that. The great divorce between you and your cable company. I'm sure they will offer me some kind of settlement. You know, like, uh, stay with us. We'll give you HBO for three months. Don't do it. Don't do it. That is the great temptation. Don't do it. Okay? I'm just telling you. You'll put 10 pounds on like that. And your kids will get in trouble. Okay, straight ahead, folks. Things you need to recover from every day. It's not enough to just keep pushing, pushing, pushing. At some point, you need to turn things off and go recover. Benjamin Hardy will be talking to us about uh, how to find some health and some peace in our lives by learning to say no. That's straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, being busy and being productive are not the same thing. Many people are trying to do too much flat out. You know, they desire to keep up and and keep showing that they're doing a lot and they want to do a lot. Life is so filled with opportunities today. But sometimes in order to keep going ahead and making uh, strides ahead, you've also got to take time to recover once in a while from life. And our next guest, uh, Benjamin Hardy, is the number one writer on Medium.com in 2016. He writes a lot about self-improvement, motivation, and entrepreneurship. Currently, he's finishing his dissertation and graduating with a Ph.D. from Clemson, uh, South Carolina, where he lives with his wife and uh, some beautiful kids as well. Uh, Benjamin, thanks for being with us today. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here with you. You you bring up a really interesting point about recovery. A lot of us spend so much time just trying to constantly create that we never actually recover from life. We just kind of we – ne- we probably aren't learning. We aren't uh, enhancing, synthesizing our learning. We're just – constantly living for the future. Yeah. So like there's three key areas when I think about recovery that prompted this idea and prompted all my thinking on recovery. One was obviously sleep. When you're sleeping, your brain is recovering. Your subconscious mind is organizing all the things you've learned. It's literally healing itself. Uh, so that was kind of phase one. And then I spent a lot of time doing fitness. And every every person who is actually in good shape will tell you that most of your strength and your gains happen while you're recovering. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, one of my favorite writers and authors, his name's Tim Ferriss, he talks a lot about how people have a really hard time getting to where they want to go simply because they exercise too much. Yeah. If your exercise is good and like focused, and then you spend a lot of time recovering, you can actually get stronger. Then just the last kind of area, and we can dive into whatever of these you want, is creativity. And there's a lot of research that talks about how And I've just experienced this all the time. So, you know, you get a lot of creative ideas, let's just say when you're in the shower, not when you're at the office. Right. uh, Or when you're on your commute. So and uh, even when you're on vacation, you know, if you go away and take a sabbatical for a few days, usually you can step out. You can see the forest for the trees. You can actually like get some good ideas. And so there's a lot of research that basically says that only 16 percent of your creative ideas will happen while you're at work. Most of it happens. So if you focus in on work, kind of like let's just say you're focusing on an exercise, you actually do it. You're not staring at your phone like most people are doing. You actually focus while you're at work or while you're working out. You walk away and then all of a sudden a flood of creative ideas will come. And that's where the recovery happens. And so it's the same for sleep, fitness, creativity. The, The recovery and the time away is what's important, but it doesn't really happen unless you have an excellent time while you're actually doing it. It's so true, isn't it? And it's it's almost like breathing, right? I mean, it, you have to inhale, but you have to exhale. But to exhale, you're getting rid of stuff, and it doesn't seem as productive. So a lot of this is about our our paradigm of what's productive. And we almost think that productive only means when you're accelerating. But you're saying productive may mean actually more valuable and maybe more valuable when you're not accelerating, but you're breaking, you're slowing down. Yeah. So from my perspective, productivity is not about doing a lot of things. It's about making the correct progress, you know? And so let's just say a person exercises six times a week. They may feel productive, but they may not have actually gotten any, in any better of shape. And so I guess the question is, was that a good use of their time? Whereas a person may work out once or twice a week and actually make substantial progress. And so productivity, in my opinion, or progress is about having a clear goal and then actually applying the right principles or strategies to get there, not just doing, 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 doing. That's super cool. And then so recovery can apply. And you're saying you actually in your article um, that you wrote, uh, I guess, in journal.thriveglobal.com. 
you wrote six things you need to recover from daily, um, work, technology, people, food, fitness, and being awake. Yeah. These are like six major recoveries really in our lives. And we need to do it every day. So like, you know, people, so I guess I'll just start with technology because that's the one most in front of people is most people wake up first thing they do. So I think the average millennial and people between like 20 to 40, the first thing they do when they wake up is not meditate or even like look at their spouse. The first thing they do is they look at their phone. Yeah. It's like, I think 80% of millennials look at their phone within the first five minutes. Um, and a lot of people keep their phone by their bed and they actually wake up and look at their phone through the night, which interrupts their sleep. Unbelievable. And, you know, obviously if you're disrupting sleep, it's just like disrupting a work session, you know, but your sleep is obviously the most fundamental thing. Uh, and then the last thing people do is they look at their phones, you know, and they're constantly looking at their technology, their scrolling through tabs on their computer while they're working. And so they're never actually, their technology has basically enslaved them. Mm, You know what I mean? Like they're not using their technology, their technology is using them. And uh, there's a really good book called Deep Work by Cal Newport. came out recently. It's one of the best books on the subject, but it talks about how with the rise of the internet and technology, we have this amazing opportunity where we can do work that makes a huge impact but the problem is, is that most people will never actually be able to get the benefits of the technology because they can't get past the distraction of it. Right. They can't use technology correctly, and so they can't experience all the benefits of it, whereas the few people who learn how to use technology correctly are reaping enormous rewards because we live in a time when creative work is the most important work. You know, Whether it's entrepreneurship, whether it's writing, whether it's ideas, those kind of things spread, and the only way to do that type of work is to go deep. Uh, which is what Cal Newport, why he calls the book Deep Work. And the only way to do deep work is to not be distracted. It's almost turn off your phone. You have to like be away from that stuff, have time to think deeply, study deeply, and go deep into a creative concept. And you can't do that if you're constantly going back and forth from tab to tab to tab yeah. or multitasking. You just can't go deep. And so that's where people live. It really is. So this inability to turn, and I guess part of recovery is just knowing when to turn it off, knowing when to fold it. Yeah. So there's a really cool concept that uh, I'm writing about in a book that I'm writing. It's called Forcing Functions. And basically the idea is that you want to create an environment that forces you to act the way you want to. So in my opinion, the smartest thing to do is like set clear boundaries. If you want to be home, like let's just say you go home with your family at, you know, after work. The smartest thing to do if you want to actually be present and engaged with your family is to just leave your phone in your car. If it's in your environment, you're probably going to subconsciously just pick it up scroll your news feed and then you're never like fully in the moment True, huh? and so the idea is is control technology like if you can leave your cell phone away from your body um ariana huffington says get a like an alarm clock don't have your phone yeah. in your room like most people's excuse is that they need their phone in their room for their alarm clock every kid it's a bad excuse like yeah. just get an alarm clock leave your phone in your car use it when you need it and then Kind of same with work, like just work when you work. And it's really hard because most of us can take work home with us because we do it with our email and stuff. Just leave leave the technology away from you. And what I guess it allows you to do is, I mean, we feel like we're almost less productive. But you're saying this buys you space and time and opportunity to go deeper into what you need to go deeper into. Life, experience, whether it's people or, I mean, anything. Yeah. So basically in today's world, the quality of work is not based on like how much manual labor you can do like it was in the industrial economy. The quality of work you can do is based on the quality of your thinking. Yeah. And the quality of your thinking depends on how 
well you can think about ideas. And basically the quality of thinking comes from being able to go deep into a subject. So there's a concept in psychology called flow. You're probably well aware of it. And flow can only happen when you go deep. You can't live in flow if you're at the surface. And people have gotten used to living at the surface, whether that's with their family. They can't actually fully engage when they're home or whether they're at the gym or whether they're at work. And so the idea is in order to become a really good thinker, you need time. You know, you need to spend an hour just reflecting, pondering, reading a book or writing in your journal without fragmenting that thinking through scanning a news feed. And if you want to go deep in your relationships, you need time away, even if it's like a weekend, go to go somewhere. Like I just recently went to Lake Powell with my family. and It was awesome. Um, uh, You need time away to fully connect in those relationships. You need time with yourself. This is that disconnecting from people. You need time, you know, to be alone. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus went away for 40 days. That's right. He went to his desert. You need to be alone. You need you need time to think, reflect, vision, envision your future. Think about the big projects. You just need time. (laughs) And what's funny about it is we always say we don't have time because we're too busy supposedly producing. But you may be busy producing, but you're probably not producing clarity. You're not producing depth, which is why you have to work harder to get clarity and depth because you'd never take time. Okay, so yeah, this brings up a really cool subject. Uh, It's in occupational health psychology. Basically, there's a subject that's gotten a ton of traction in the research. It's called psychological detachment from work. Mm. I actually mention it in the article. But basically, there's a lot of research that says that for people who never actually disengage from work, and disengaging means like mentally, emotionally, you literally stop thinking about work when you leave. Yeah, You fully disengage and engage into the other areas of your life. If you can't do that, then you actually can't re-engage when you go to work. So you're never actually engaged in anything you're doing. You're always halfway in, halfway out of oh, home. And in life. Yeah. But the research says that in order to fully engage in your work and go deep, you have to completely disengage and go away. And I think that's true of you know food. It's true of technology. It's true of sleep. Like if you really – I just remember you know, in certain times of my life, uh, like when I worked really hard, I slept really well. Yeah. And it's like when you sleep really well, you're not tired. You don't need stimulants. You don't need all these things that people are using as kind of like they're just using to kind of hedge from their bad habits. Yeah, to medicate and to do anything they can to escape yeah. from the life they've built. Yeah. This is powerful stuff. Again, we're speaking with Benjamin P. Hardy, um, and the article is Six Things You Need to Recover From Every Day. And we'll continue the journey in just a minute as we go into other topics that we might need some recovery from, like our food. And uh, how about even just people? At what point is it okay to just, I guess, recover from the people around us? How, when is it that we need enough time to just have a little time to be alone? That's all straight ahead right here on the Matt Townsend Show. back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, joined by soon-to-be Dr. Benjamin P. Hardy, who is uh, currently pursuing a Ph.D. in organizational behavior? Psychology. Organizational psychology at Clemson uh, University in South Carolina. And Benjamin is, um, he's a, he really is a prolific writer. He's a, he's a thought leader. He's got a great website as well. You can go to his website, um, BenjaminHardy.com. 
And uh, you can read all of these articles, but today he's teaching us about the importance of recovery and really the importance of if, if we're going to turn everything on like technology and people and work and fitness and all of these things, then you also need to recognize there's incredible value of being able to turn these things off and allowing your body to recover or your relationships to recover or your technology to actually have some off time. So again, uh, Benjamin, talk about why, I mean, recovery, it seems like the big goal is it enhances creativity and enhances productivity. Results come not just by pushing the accelerator, but also knowing when to take your foot off the accelerator. Yeah, exactly. I think one thing that's really interesting is that most people think recovery or time away is like a waste of time. Yeah. But really, like, that's your most essential time. Like, your evening... So I spend a lot of time thinking about, like, your morning and your evening routines. Um, And so, like, your evening routine, in my opinion, is just as important for your success as your morning routine. But most people's nights are spent binge-watching television, eating the ice cream because they haven't really taken the time to set things up. But also your evening for most people is like when you're with your family. Right. It's when you, that really should be the best time of your day. And that should be when you have your best performance because that's like when you've stepped away and you fully engage back into like your real life. Um, But most people, because they don't disconnect from their work or their technology or even food, they're just kind of like binge eating chips or whatever. Like they don't fully engage into like their family. They don't get the rest and recovery they need. So their sleep Uh, is bad. So one real quick thought on technology, and this is kind of becoming more well-known, but if you don't disconnect from, let's just say, your technology within like 60 minutes of going to bed, your sleep cycle gets messed up. If your sleep cycle cycle gets messed up, what's going to happen to your next day? Oh, yeah. But if you have an amazing evening where you've recovered, you've taken some time to visualize, you know, and so I would say part of recovery is taking some time to go away from even your family, taking some time to ponder, meditate, maybe read a little bit, visualize what you want to do the next day, then you can wake up with purpose. And there's a lot of research that talks about how in the morning your brain is like most activated for creativity. You know, your mind's been like digesting a lot of information. You're totally primed essentially. So Thomas Edison said, one of my favorite quotes of his is, he says, never go to bed without giving a request to your subconscious mind. Yeah. So, you know, like, you know, you could do that in the form of prayer or meditation, but before you go to bed, you should be thinking about projects you're working on or about relationships you're trying to solve or big things you're trying to accomplish. Your mind is going to mold those things over. Your subconscious mind is like 95% more powerful than your conscious mind. When you wake up, the first thing you do, which is what I've been doing for a long time and it's what a lot of successful entrepreneurs and creatives do, is as soon as they wake up, they just thought dump in yeah. a journal, 15, 20 minutes, And you will just prime so many of your subconscious breakthroughs that you had in the evening. And so as far as creativity, if you never actually had that restful recovery in the evening, there's no way that you're going to actually have a rested brain that had amazing sleep to like prime all these jewels that are just like waiting for you. And so in the morning, you can come up with amazing ideas. I call it getting out of survival mode because most people when they wake up, again, the first thing they do is just check check their technology. And what they do is they live in a reactive state. They're reacting to their environment rather than proactively saying, this is what I want to create. And so if you wake up, you start writing in your journal, you start visualizing about your future, you're going to get a lot of insights, intuitive, inspirational, creative insights. And that's the best time to start thinking about writing about the projects you're working on. For me, because I'm a writer, that's when I just write about either a book I'm writing or articles I want to write about. And you just get a flood of ideas. But you can't actually do that 
if you're f- always just plugged into technology, if you're always plugged into your work, if you're never taking time to break away. Mm. Um, it's almost I, like you're, you're making um, – you're talking about thinking. You're talking about creativity. And most of us are just – but it's almost – theoretical that you're talking it's what could be it's potential versus but the rest of us are like hey i got to get dressed in the morning because i got to get to work to do my job my job but that eventually is so disengaging from life because you're more than your job you're really your thoughts you're your relationships you're your interactions you're your health you're all these other intangibles so a quote that i really like it's by um Tony Robbins, he says you get in life exactly what you tolerate. You know, if you tolerate bad relationships, what are you going to have? You're going to have yeah. bad relationships. If you tolerate poor health, you're going to have poor health. If you tolerate bad habits, you're going to get it. So, like, if you, I think it takes an honest look in the mirror to say, my life right now is what I've created because I'm willing to tolerate these things. If I didn't tolerate these things, they'd go away. And so a lot of people's jobs are not what they love because they just think that this is acceptable. They've yeah. accepted that this is the life I can or should have rather than saying, no, I'm going to live a better life. I'm going to do work that matters. I'm going to spend time with my family. I'm going to create the life that I want, you know. And so I think a lot of people are living in a more reactive state because they've just settled yeah. for something different. But I think when you start to, like, look at your life more like a creator, you start saying, if I'm going to work, I'm going to work. If I'm going to be home, I'm going to be at home. And I'm going to actually build the life I want. I'm going to start building companies or products or ideas you know we live in a creative state and i think kind of what you're talking about is most people can't really fathom what it means to like constantly have an inflow of creativity or the ability to like create themselves and i think the reason for that is because they haven't actually unplugged they're still fully just like in this reactive right plug-in mode and i think the best way to get yourself out of that state is to unplug you may need like what tim ferris calls a mini retirement you may need to just say I need to go away for a week. Like I need to unplug and like don't don't bring your technology. Take a journal, take a book, and like take some time to connect back to yourself. Yeah, and then no, start to think huge. about who I want to be. And and almost, but the, allow the fear to kind of be there that I don't know what will happen next, but trust that unplugging will help. Well, unplugging is essential, yeah. and then like eventually you get to the point where you have to learn to unplug daily. Like you know, unplugging for a week, like once a year which is what most people get, is yeah. good. But you need to get to the point where, like, rest and recovery is an essential part of your day. Like, you you own your technology. It doesn't own you. Like, and there's a lot of research on, like, now intermittent fasting and just fasting in general. Like, unplugging from food. Like, don't just constantly eat and just eat whatever's in front of you. Like, be proactive about the food you put in your body. Be proactive about the technology you use. Be proactive about when you're with people. Uh, it's really just about organizing your life rather than just being a product of whatever situation you're in. Yeah. It's, can this, can this be, I mean, it works for you. I could see how it totally works for me in my world, but we kind of, we're creative ish people. What if you're somebody that runs a backhoe Yep. and your job is to run the backhoe eight hours a day? Yeah. I mean, so that's more physical labor yeah. in general. And, you know, in the world we live in, most work is going into like the more cognitive sphere, right? which is a lot more taxing. Your brain costs a lot. If you're doing physical labor like that, it's different. You know, like, you still need to recover. You definitely yeah. need to recover. But like you could work a solid eight hour shift as a physical laborer. And I would say for a lot of people could adapt to that. In the mental creation world, which is where a lot of people live now, 
most people can really only do about three quality hours of focused work yeah. before they need a recovery. And in the case of the the hoe worker, uh, I mean, they still need to they still need to go and get some serious rest and recovery. That doesn't mean going home and binge watching a bunch of TV, right, right? Right. I mean, I think that that person needs to decide what is actual recovery for them. And I guess um, that's what everybody should be thinking out there. How would I? Where do I need to engage recovery in my life? And how would it? I mean, how would it? How would it inform me and and make my job even better for me, even more exciting, even more engaging? Yeah, I mean, I'd be interested in that person's life. Like, I'd be, I'd be interested in what time they wake up, what time they stop working, and then what happens between work and sleep. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like, I think that that that'd be interesting for me to see. I'd be interested in like what their sleep cycle is, what time they wake up. Do they wake up and pull themselves out of bed and immediately drag themselves into work, or do they give themselves like a thirty to sixty minute space where they actually visualize, think about where they want to be, not just plug into a, a phone, I mean, or plug into their email. I don't know if this person even needs an email. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I would be interested in kind of just all their habits around their work. What um, What advice would you give uh, for the person that, that wants to start to recover or start recovering in either work or technology? Where What's like the first thing they could do? What's an easy recovery or kind of process to get started on. Yeah. So there's there's a really cool principle. I actually now forget what it's called, but the idea is to give yourself time limits on how long you'll focus at work. So for most people, we work on computers. Um, even if you don't work on a computer, the idea is, is give yourself a 30-minute timer where you do nothing but focus on work. And then once you step out of that 30-minute timer, take a five-minute break, walk around, drink some water, and what people will find is if they fully engage in the work they're doing, yeah. when they walk away and even take – walking is a really good creative process. If you think about any successful writer, they'll a lot of times tell you that most of their best ideas come while they're writing. Keep a notebook, little notebook on your hand. Go walk for five to ten minutes. Drink some water. You're actually going to get way more creative insights or insights about the work you're doing while you're away from it. Walk away, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so pace yourself. Don't have any tabs open on your internet while you're working unless you're actually intentional about it. Like if you know, I'm going to take a five, 10 minute break. But the research says if you dip out of focus, it takes you about 20 minutes to get back in. Oh, wow. So, you know, most people are never actually in a state of flow. Uh, so the idea is, is when you're at work, be at work, take lots of breaks, walk away, walk around. You'll get most of your creative inspiration when you're away from your computer. And then when you're away from work, try to fully disengage. Leave your phone in your car if you can. Do fun and novel things, novel being just things you haven't done before. The more things you do that you've never done before, even if it's just like go to a play or do things you don't normally do, wear clothes that are different colors than you yeah, wouldn't normally wear. just do wear, something to be different. The difference will actually prompt a lot of creativity and it will keep you uh, just engaged in what you're doing. Oh, my heavens. Plus, it might get you, you know, some more fun looks. Yeah. People will be checking <laughs> you don't have you to out. wear like a flower shirt, but like a pirate you know, shirt. Jeff always wears pirate shirts wherever he is. Wear does. different colors than you're used to wearing. That's pretty cool. Good stuff. Benjamin P. Hardy's his name. Go to his website. Again, a great resource, benjaminhardy.com. Uh, he's a wonderful writer and does a lot of, I think, great insight. In fact, I can't believe you're doing all of this before you've even got your PhD. What's, what's left with you, Benjamin? Man, tons of good stuff. We, um, we bring you these ideas so that you can learn to live a healthier, happier life. And remember, you got to recover, folks. you got to sometimes put oil back in the lamp if you're going to keep burning it. 
Uh, we'll take a break, come back, continue this journey, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. I don't know what it is. Every time I hear that promotion from Cassie Carney, I get I, my mouth starts. You get watering. hungry. Mm-hmm. Mm. Cassie Carney, which, if you know Spanish, do you know what Cassie Carney means? Um, Cassie Carney means almost meat. Oh, yeah. If you're translating it, there you go. That fits then. Yeah, it's almost meat. Rodent. Hey, uh, as we like to do on the show, we we have a lot of news for you. Some of the news are headlines that you didn't even know were as important as they are. And so we we call it Empty News, Matt Townsend News, and uh, Jeff uh, Simpson is going to lead us in this. The Empty News Team, first on the scene, fifth on facts. Okay, I know you'll be excited to hear about this one. I know Terry was, um, and a lot of people are still talking about the eclipse, but it's kind of wearing off a little bit. And there's a guy here who decided to use an interesting piece of equipment to stare at the eclipse. What? Well, gosh, how do you even say this name? J-O-C-S-A-N? Hoxan Feliciano Rosado of Orange County, Florida. He's 22 years old. He stole a vehicle and was being followed by the sheriff's auto theft unit. Uh Uh-oh. Rosado parked the stolen car at a hardware store and bought a welder's mask to safely view the solar (laughs) eclipse. I don't know if you can safely do that with a welder's mask. And by the way, why did he steal a car, but he paid for the welder's mask? That's a great question. You'll have to ask Hoxan. I guess the welder's mask might be a little cheaper. But the cops were like watching the car. is probably tagged or whatever, so they knew where it was, and then they go pick him up. So as he was standing in the parking lot next to the stolen car with the welding helmet on and looking up at the eclipse, (laughs) deputies swooped in and made an arrest. He never saw it coming. That is so sad, and he probably missed the the eclipse. Totality. He probably didn't have totality. Probably not. (laughs) I mean, it's so sad. Is it? This only happens every hundred years or whatever. It's just a good point, though, that there are some things that are so distracting that we lose sight of what's really important. It's worth stealing a car for. (laughs) Crazy. And then an egg scare in Belgium, huh? Yeah. So a Belgian town honored its 22-year-old tradition of making a giant omelet on mm. uh, amidst an egg contamination scare, Uh-oh. cooking 10,000 eggs in a pan four meters wide. Wow. Millions of chicken eggs have been pulled from European supermarket shelves as a result of the scare over the use of the insecticide fipronil, which is forbidden in the food chain and can cause organ damage in humans. <laughs> Hundreds of people gathered in the eastern Belgian city of Malmedy, undeterred by the scare, and the president of the local branch of the giant omelet fraternity, Benedict Mathy, said she was confident Tuesday's dish was safe to eat. Oh, boy. But, yeah. So, I'm not going they near ate that. it anyway. Not going near Even it. though there was the possibility of 10, organ damage. Eggs plus all the neg, plus all the eggshells in there. Mm-hmm. Not going near it. Nah. But, you know, once you cook all those 
insecticides out. Yeah, I'm sure it's safe, right? I thought I thought they were. I thought in Belgium it was more about the waffle than the egg. Hmm. Anyway, hey, uh, your show's coming up. Screen cleaning. Uh, give us a quick ten second update. Well, we are going to be speaking to a gentleman about screen time mm. and and how we often misunderstand screen time. Oh, A lot of parents would think it's about how much screen time you give your children, but it's more about the quality and the communication that you have with your children. Excellent. So you're going to help you're going to help us have cleaner screeners. Yes. And we're speaking with Rod Gustafson, who is going to review a couple of movies for us. Good stuff. All straight ahead on Jeff's show, Screen Cleaning, right here on BYU Radio. Good morning. This is Ron Brokaw at the SC News Desk with breaking news. A man was arrested on federal smuggling charges after customs officers intercepted a shipment with three live king cobras hidden inside potato chip canisters that were being mailed to his California home. The agents later searched Rodrigo Franco's home and found tanks with a live baby Moralette's crocodile, alligator-snapping turtles, and five diamondback terrapins. Prosecutors say all of the reptiles are protected under U.S. law. Franco admitted to an agent from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that he had previously received 20 king cobras in two other shipments, all of which died in transit. We here at the SE News Desk would like to issue this official word of warning. If you're thinking of cracking open a can of delicious potato chips, think again. You never know what sort of creature could be lurking inside. We'll bring you updates as they become available, and we now take you live to Screen Cleaning with Jeff Simpson. Man, that's that's a bummer. I was just thinking how awesome it would be to... Have some delicious potato chips this weekend. Well, think again. Oh, that's too bad. Watch out, Cole. When you open up those potato chips, could be a snake inside. Uh, I doubt we're going to hear any more developments in that story. Oh, of course not. (laughs) Welcome to Screen Cleaning. This is Jeff Simpson here with Cole Wissinger. And we do our darndest every week to bring you the very best in entertainment news. That's what screen cleaning is all about, trying to help you identify entertainment that you can all enjoy together as a family. We're trying to save your Fridays and Saturday nights is really what we're trying to do. So let's get into the best news. Really, the only best news category that we have today is news that would be the best for people other than Cole and myself, because <laughs> we don't necessarily uh care about it ourselves, but it's probably going to make a lot of people very happy and very excited. And the first of which I'm going to let Cole take the reins on this one has to do with the DC Universe. This is the best Batman news, or really the best Joker news. If you were one of the three people that were a fan of Jared Leto's Joker, you're about to get more. Ooh! Um, Gotham City Sirens, which was going to be about some of the female anti-heroes of the DC universe. So you have Harley Quinn, Poison Ivy. Mm-hmm. Batgirl cat- was probably going to show up. Catwoman. Catwoman definitely okay. in there. Mm-hmm. Um, that movie has been pulled and replaced <gasps> with Joker and Harley Quinn. What? I thought I we were know. making such good prog- progress with these uh, women in films films. Nope. Oh. 
And then also there will be a standalone Joker movie that stands outside of your established DC expanded universe. It will be starting its own universe that isn't really a universe of places where filmmakers can make movies starring DC characters that don't have to rely on the universe. The I Batman love that. I love that. Ben Affleck was or maybe not with Ben Affleck or whatever the status of that currently is was going to be in that. But then they reneged on those comments and said, no, it really hmm. will be in the real universe. We're just not going to make it a movie where we have to cram all these other characters into it. See, I um, enjoy that. I, I DC feel like, is very confused. I right feel now. like those are the strongest Marvel movies, the ones that are just the standalone pictures, like the original Guardians of the Galaxy, Iron Man, uh, Ant Man. Those are the ones, I, the ones that don't have to rely on this whole big universe. I think those are the ones that are most enjoyable. Yeah, and so they're bringing in pretty good directors to start this new thing, but it's kind of disconcerting. Again, we are only, and and it's a hard reminder to have to make because Marvel is so entrenched in their Phase 4 and they've been around since 08. We're three movies in to the DC Extended Universe, and they are already pulling back, making changes, making recuts. They're batting 300, though, or 333, because Wonder Woman was a huge hit, and you enjoyed it. Yeah. I haven't seen it yet. Wonder Woman comes out. It's fantastic. We want more of that. And what do we get? Three more Joker movies. <laughs> With Thanks, an actor DC. that no, or I mean, they liked the actor, but they didn't yeah. like his portrayal of the Joker. Yeah. Uh, so you shared a piece of news with me that I refuse to believe. In fact, I won't believe it until the film is done and in the can and in the theaters. And that is that Martin Scorsese is directing the Joker Yes. With Jared Leto? No, 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 no. Okay. So he's going to be directing the Joker that isn't in the DC. This is why oh, I didn't want to devote super confusing. a lot of time to this. You said 15 seconds and it's been more like three minutes, but that's <sighs> my fault. It's, so I don't believe it. I don't believe that. I'm just so uninterested in DC right now. This is like when Brett Favre a few years ago would come out <laughs> in and out of retirement every year. Yeah. You have to update the people and say, as of today, he is still retired, but it's not the kind of thing you talk about for 10 you, minutes. <laughs> you know he's going to get Leonardo DiCaprio to play the Joker because he ha- yes. has like this love affair right now with Leonardo DiCaprio. They yes. made a ton of films together. I mean, even Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholas. Jack Nicholson. <laughs> Jack Nicholas is a golfer. <laughs> even Jack Nicholson has done some Scorsese films in the past. He was our Joker in 1989. Maybe he reprises his role and we get an old man Joker. I don't <laughs> think that's going to happen because Jack Nicholson is sen- essentially he's retired already, too. Oh, yeah. He is coming out with a movie with Kristen Wiig. I know that, which is a of remake course. of a foreign film. Uh, but anyway, I, I promise we're not going to be talking about DC films. It's just sad. I love comic book movies, and yeah. these are just being mutilated and destroyed at every turn. They need to hire Christopher Nolan back, but I'm sure he's moved on to bigger and better things. <clears throat> Dunkirk. Um, okay. Well, like I said, we're not going to be talking about DC films the whole show. I, it, oh, hold on a second. That's our ripped from the headlines segment, so that can only mean one thing. I, I'm I'm uh, getting word now that uh, the story that Ron Brokaw shared earlier about the man that was arrested for smuggling snakes into the country in potato chip cans, uh, it's actually being turned into a movie. And I guess, oh, this totally makes sense, since it's snakes, 
and a movie about snakes. Samuel L. Jackson has got to be involved in some shape or form. But actually, this one is different. He is in the movie. It's different, though, because uh, this one looks like it's kind of an Oscar bait movie. And so it's not just a shoot 'em up action film. He's really playing against type here and trying to be taken a little more seriously in these snake movies. So there's I, there might be some buzz around this film come Oscar season. Ten years ago, Frederico Blanco left his native Mexico in search of a dream. Now he's hoping his beloved king cobras can join him in the country he's come to love. But when the Department of the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services fails him, he takes measures into his own hands and is arrested for smuggling the snakes into the country in a can of potato chips. Now, only one man can help him. Please, please, you must help me. They took my babies. I wanted to bring them in legally, but I didn't have the money. I need the best lawyer you can get. Please, get Carver for me. James T. Carver is an attorney who's at the top of his game. Don't mention him, Mr. President. Happy to help. And don't forget our 12 o'clock tea time. Bye-bye now. Oh, Carver, are you busy? Always. Well, come in anyway. What can I do for you, Johnson? I think you should take a look at this case. Are you interested? Come on now, Johnson. Babies being deported? You know I don't do these types of cases. Uh, did I mention his babies are actually King Cobras? You say King Cobras? Cancel my afternoon appointments. I'm taking his case. Pro bono! putting the whole reptile immigration system on trial. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you never really understand the snake until you consider things from his point of view. Until you climb into his skin and slither around in it. This man knows what he did was wrong, but his hand was forced into it. I have had it with these reptile immigration officers making it too hard for law-abiding snakes to come into this country legally. In the name of all that is decent, ladies and gentlemen, do your duty. You're out of order, counselor. This whole immigration process is out of order. Samuel L. Jackson in Snakes in a Courtroom. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. If you're hearing that music, it means it's time to head over to Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews, who's here to talk to us about a couple of new films out this weekend. Rod, how are you doing? I'm I'm doing better than the summer box office is doing. Let's oh. put it that way, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So you must be doing pretty well then because, yeah, pretty dismal, well, those numbers. It really is. Well, it's a pretty low bar to say I'm doing better than the box office isn't saying much. Yeah, this is um, uh, they've had three months of decline and this has been one pathetic summer for Hollywood. It really is. I'm sure there's some head scratching going on. I think overall this has kind of been a weak year for movies Mm -hmm. and especially in terms of animated features or even just uh, features that are geared toward children. I've really struggled to find one that I could enjoy and take my kids to. So I'm hoping that you've got some good news for us today because there is a new animated film that comes out today that I'm guessing is not going to add a whole lot to those uh, dismal box office numbers. 
Well, you know, I really wish that it could because, and just going back on that previous conversation for a moment, we have had a lot fewer, we've had fewer PG-13 and PG and and definitely G-rated movies over the summer. And I think that is part of what's affecting our box office because this is the time of year where parents and families want to go see movies, not much to see. So this week, yes, we have a movie that's called Leap. Now, Leap has a little bit of history to it if you live in my part of the world because this is a a Canadian-French co-production. And uh, we actually, this movie was released here back in February. And uh, so uh, obviously I've got a bit of a bias being a patriotic (laughs) Canadian. Sure. Canadian... Canadian animation companies do beautiful, beautiful work. I I am always amazed at the quality of animation that we have here with some of the uh, some of the animators. Uh, the problem is they often are working with horrible scripts. Oh <laughs> no! So take, for instance, the nut job two from a few weeks ago. If you turn down the volume and just look at the pictures, <laughs> it's actually a really beautiful film. There are some incredible backgrounds in it and uh, some beautiful animation going on. Well, Leap is much the same way. This is a beautifully animated film. Now, it's better than the nut job two. Okay, we're giving Leap okay. a B grade. Ooh. But it's, it's, it's kind of your typical story of a... Two young children that are living in probably about the turn of the 20th century uh, in Paris. They're both orphans. They've escaped from the orphanage for out in the country, and they've come to Paris. The little boy has a dream of becoming an inventor. The little girl has a dream of becoming a ballerina. Well, obviously, from the name of the movie, Leap, and it was called Ballerina in Canada, uh, she is the, the main focus of the story, and she's the protagonist. And uh, through some dishonesty, and some other things that happen. She winds up mimicking a, a rich French girl who was supposed to be uh, going to some big fancy um, ballet recital or something in Paris, but she she pretends to be that person and takes her place instead. So there's a story here of ethics and honesty and a few other things going on. The other girl's mother, the rich girl's mother, turns into being this over-the-top antagonist that is just so unbelievable and way too over the top that she really overpowers the story in a very negative way and uh, and it just really becomes it kind of follows that Saturday morning cartoon template which as I say the animation's way better than that but the story isn't and so you know, young kids will probably find this somewhat amusing. And if you're dying to get out to the theater, you certainly could do worse. But at the same time, if the budget is a little bit tight for movies, you could wait for this one to show up on your home video screen quite nicely. Okay. So, Rod, we've got just a couple of minutes left. Tell, uh, tell us about the other film that comes out today. I think this one is PG, correct? Yes, this one is PG as well, and uh, this movie is called All Saints, and this is a faith-based movie uh, coming from Sony's uh, faith-based motion picture uh, division, and uh, faith-based films have really been doing quite well, mainly because of what we call in Hollywood the multiplier. They're relatively inexpensive movies to make, and if you make a movie for $10 million and it makes $60 million, you've got a hit on your hands. Yeah. And so All Saints is actually a very moving story. 
It's based on a true story of a uh, Episcopalian minister who gets assigned, it's his first church that he gets assigned to, and he's basically told to close the church because there's not enough parishioners there. So he starts going through the process of the real estate and everything else that they need to do, and then all of a sudden, these a group of refugees shows up at the church, and they're refugees from Southeast Asia, and, uh, and they need help. Well, the dozen or so regular parishioners, they're kind of uncomfortable from, uh, by this because who are these people? They don't really speak English and they're very needy and everything else. And, uh, but this minister starts realizing, you know, why, why is he a minister if not to be Christian and to not to want to help people? So the next thing he finds himself becoming is he's at odds with his boss, so to speak, who's telling him to sell the church. He wants to keep the church and they figure out a way that they can make the mortgage payments. These people from Asia, these refugees, know how to grow a garden. And this church has a lot of land. So they wind up plowing up a lot of the land and growing vegetables and with the hopes of being able to sell these vegetables to make the mortgage payments. But things don't work out quite that way. But I won't give away the whole end of the movie. <laughs> but it's a lovely film. It really is. This is not Oscar-winning cinema. But this is certainly a great movie. You know, being a religious person myself, sometimes we get comfortable in our religion. And, you know, when we start getting comfortable, we're probably not doing the things we need to be doing. And I think that's one of the best lessons that comes from this movie. Well, it sounds like it's it's a good, uplifting film. And, you know, as you said, these faith-based films do extremely well. You know, going back to that film with Kirk Cameron, Fireproof, mm-hmm. I remember that was kind of the, the first time that I remember seeing a film of this nature that just really went to show you that, you know, there are people out there that that still believe in God and desire to see these movies and have more of these movies made, and they routinely do quite well. And it's nice to see that the studios are finally recognizing that that yeah that there is the, these are good legitimate investments because as I say if you can uh, if many of these movies are being made for under twenty million dollars which is incredibly inexpensive by Hollywood standards and uh, and they are turning a profit so I think that's why we're seeing more of them. And the quality is increasing, which I am really appreciating. We've seen a few now that are really quite solid movies. Well, Rod, we really appreciate your time here on Screen Cleaning. And oh, hopefully, here's hoping that uh, the year will pick up as we get into the holiday mm-hmm. season and we'll start seeing uh, better films, really. And especially yeah. for, for kids, because I'm just itching to take my kids to something. So hopefully, we'll, uh, hopefully they'll enjoy Leap. So we really appreciate your time once again here on Screen Cleaning. When we return, we are going to, speaking of screens, we're going to be talking screen time with our guest Nathan Fisk. And it's not just about how much screen time we have, we, uh, we provide our children with, but really the quality of the screen time and also the quality of our communication with them in terms of their viewing experience. When we return, this is Screen Cleaning.
Thanks for tuning in to a 90-second movie review for the film Logan Lucky on BYU Radio. In 2013, Steven Soderbergh announced that he was retiring from making films. He's returned, though, to direct Logan Lucky, and we are lucky he did. Logan Lucky is a heist film. Soderbergh made Ocean's 11, 12, and 13, so heist movies are in his wheelhouse. This time around, though, the actors portray stereotypical Southerners trying to steal money from Charlotte Motor Speedway. Not only one of the most notable tracks on the NASCAR schedule, but they want to do it during one of the biggest races of the year, the Coca-Cola 600. The humor in this film is a dry, deadpan style that is funny. The best character for me was Joe Bang. Daniel Craig playing an explosives expert with bleach blonde hair. It was really fun. And he never once sounded like James Bond, and he was always on point. Plus, there are some cameos in the film of NASCAR drivers not playing drivers that were fun to catch. Channing Tatum and Adam Driver as the Logan brothers play off of each other very well. I was very entertained by this film, but I must say, I am a NASCAR fan, so there's some extra in it for me. The ending did make me ask some questions, but there may be a sequel. Also, this is not a true story, as you'll see in the disclaimer at the end of the credits. If you plan to take your kids to Logan Lucky, there is some language spread throughout the film. You'll also see some violence in the jail as prisoners fight guards and each other, and a man is naked in the backseat of a car, but he's visible only from the chest up. Logan Lucky is rated PG-13. I am giving it a B+. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Sean O'Neill. This has been a 90-second movie review on BYU Radio. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. This is Jeff Simpson. You know, a lot of parents are concerned about how much screen time their children get, and they would like to know how much is too much. Well, in 2015, the average teenager spent 391 minutes. That's well over six hours in front of a screen per day. Nathan Fisk, assistant professor of cybersecurity education at the University of South Florida, has found that if you already care enough to be worried about digital media, you're probably already doing enough to protect your kids. He's with us this morning to explain how screen time is more than just setting limits. Nathan, welcome to Screen Cleaning. Hi, Jeff. Glad to be here. I'm really grateful to have you here, too, because I've got two young children, and, uh, you know, I'm not home enough to, to monitor how much screen time my kids are getting. That's that's my wife's department. But I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I There are times when I worry, you know, maybe they're getting way too much screen time. But maybe I, I could do better to understand what exactly screen time is and, and whether or not there's a hard and fast rule when it comes to screen time. Well, so, I mean, you're just like many of the other parents out there today, and there's so much media out there that can be really complicated, right? And so that's the, that's the real grab of the idea of screen time, is that there's just this hard and fast, easy rule that you can just take it away, and that's, that's the end of it. But unfortunately, the idea of screen time really hasn't aged well, particularly with the diversity of media that kids have access to. And so there's a lot of really positive experiences out there that kids are engaging with. So, so it doesn't really help to just take it away. And even beyond that, there's a lot more when it comes to the kinds of social interactions that they're engaged in, the friendships that they're making, the things that they're learning online. So screen time, just simply in a matter of how much time the kids spend, isn't always the best measure or the best way to regulate what kids are doing online. Yeah, and I think also that there is a misunderstanding when it comes to screen time because, you know, I, I in the intro I mentioned that uh, the average teenager is spending well over six hours in front of a screen per day. And to me, you know, I read that and I think, 
I can't even imagine watching six hours of television, but it's not just television. You know, we're looking at our phones, we're doing things on the computer, we're doing assignments, things like that. So that that also goes into screen time as well. Right, and that's not just kids, that's that's adults. So look at the amount yeah. of time that you spend in front of a screen these days, and it's, it's comparable. And kids are doing the same things that adults are doing, and so it's primarily hanging out with friends, it's doing research for their projects, and, and the flip side of this is, too, is that if you actually look at the studies of where kids are, have been allowed to go on their own with adult, adult supervision, um, that's actually been shrinking year on year, generation on generation. And so one of the arguments I tend to make is that, well, of course kids are going to branch out online to do this kind of hanging out that every generation has always done. Um, so they're going to spend more and more time online as their their outside lives are restricted more and more. And just to be clear, it's really, really difficult to disentangle online and offline lives, especially for kids these days, because, again, they're doing all of these things with an online component. So it's not that they're missing out on other kinds of social engagement. It's that often these kinds of online social engagement, mediated social engagement, can actually strengthen offline relationships, which they have every day just like the rest of us. That's really interesting. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about some of the other benefits to screen time for these uh, for these young people and for adults, too. Sure. Before I get there, I just really want to be clear. Again, the idea of screen time itself is super problematic. So it's not that all screen time is going to be great. Like I mentioned in my article, you know, an hour reading hate speech is way different than an hour playing right. games with friends. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so, so there are, but again, most kids aren't engaged with that kind of stuff. They're doing the kinds of everyday things that most people would expect. But again, having access to all of this information allows for kids to really get into peer-based and interest-driven learning. Uh, it helps them build social connections, especially for kids who are already kind of lonely or have other kinds of social problems. It allows them to find peer groups online and and build those kinds of relationships. And even forms of gaming can help kids develop leadership skills and think through more complex problems in ways that, you know, sometimes kids don't have access to it um, in their offline lives. Yeah, and, and, you know, I I know that uh, in this article and and even in this interview, you've been very positive. This has had a very positive light to it. I'm interested to know... How, because you mentioned that it, uh, having this interaction online can actually strengthen their offline relationships. Sure. Now, how can you strike a good balance to where you don't have a child that is addicted to the television or addicted to their phone or addicted to the Internet? Right. How do you strike a good balance there? So, again, parents really need to have strong relationships with their children in the first place. And that's going to, that's going to help more than just about anything else, any of these other hard and fast rules. If, if you know your kid, you're going to know when they're spending too much online, when they're disengaging, when they're not happy, when they're generally having a problem. And sometimes that's not really about the technology as much as it is their everyday lives. So, so oftentimes we see these kinds of problematic media use when kids are facing other larger problems in their everyday lives. And so a parent who has a stronger relationship with their kids and really is, has a good understanding of how they are every day, what they're up to, and how happy they are, is going to be able to get out ahead of that problematic media use much more quickly. Uh, even beyond that, we really suggest that parents 
think about things in terms of, and this is, you know, for those of us who are doing research in the field, the approach developed by Sonia Livingstone and Alicia Bloom-Ross, the London School of Economics, that parents focus on content, context, and communication. Really, the, just the three questions of what kinds of media are kids engaging with, uh, why are they engaging with those forms of media, and who are they establishing connections with, if anyone, online. And so that gives you a little bit more of a nuanced understanding of the kinds of risks and issues that your kids might be facing. Interesting. So, okay, so you said content, context, and communication. Or connections, excuse me. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. So, oh my goodness, that is so great. Um, Okay, let's do this. I want to take a break. And when we come back, I was hoping that we could talk a little bit more about how we can help our children and really ourselves keep the screen time to a healthy level, and then also just some more on uh, developing and improving these relationships with our children. We're speaking with Nathan Fisk, who is an assistant professor of cybersecurity education in the University of South Florida College of Education, and we're talking screen time and how it's about more than setting limits. This is Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. We are blessed to be speaking with Nathan Fisk, who, in addition to being the Assistant Professor of Cybersecurity Education in the University of South Florida College of Education, he's also the Community and Outreach Liaison for the Florida Center for Cybersecurity. And I wish Nathan was here to uh, help give me some more ideas on how I could actually get some more screen time. I don't feel like I get to watch as much TV as I'd like, but uh, we're actually speaking about screen time in general and and how it's more than just setting limits and how we can uh, understand that better. Nathan, welcome back to Screen Cleaning. Thank you. So um, I want to talk a little bit more. You you mentioned uh, a little bit in the in the first segment about how really screen time is more than just setting limits and and not having this hard and fast rule, but it's making sure also that we have good relationships with our children. And I was hoping that you could share some more ideas with us on on how to keep the screen time to a healthy level for our children. Sure. So again, before the break, I mentioned really focusing on the content, context, and connections that different kinds of media engagement can bring to a child's life. And that's not always easy for parents to do on their own. And really, even when we're thinking about the amount of time that kids are spending with media, we want to focus on, you know, what kinds of time they're spending online. Is it quality time or not? So those three kind of axes will help parents do that. But again, it's very complicated. And I would, I would say that the best way to go about doing that, to talking about how long kids should be spending online is really done in conversation with your kids themselves. So the first step is sitting down with your kids, asking them about their media practices, and then thinking through the kinds of risks that they face and how long that they should be allowed to spend uh, in any given activity. But again, that's really not about time all by itself. It's, It's much more about the content, context, and connections that those kinds of media experiences provide. And by helping kids 
figure those things out with you, you you'll end up learning more about what they're doing, why they're doing it, and and how that actually comprises part of their everyday life. So, what would what would some of those questions look like when we're sitting down with our kids, trying to have this conversation with them? Well, it, it's just simply a question of you know. So, what do you do every day online? Uh, if there's a social media application that they happen to show you, like ask them. Ask them how it works and what they're doing there. Uh, if it's a game, try playing the game with them. They're often multiplayer games. Uh, if it's a forum that they really like, ask more about what it is that they're doing there. If it's material that they're reading online, ask them, well, what makes you interested about this particular? Um, so by engaging in those kinds of questions, you'll learn more about what might appear to you as a much more complicated media landscape. In the same way that, you know, your children might not know what you're doing online, you could help them understand. They can help you understand what they're doing online. You know, that's such great advice because even outside of just understanding or or knowing how your kids are spending their time and whether or not that's safe – it also shows that you're taking an interest in something that is important to them. I've got two young daughters, and every time I say, let's go jump on the trampoline or let's do such and such an activity, something that they're very interested in doing, they just get so excited that they throw their arms around me and they say, Daddy, I love you. <laughs> so I probably ought to do more more of that. Exactly. And that provides kids with real opportunities to show you that they have some level of expertise. And and often kids are really looking for those kinds of experiences. It can only be better when it's with a parent. Yeah. So, you know, clearly, I know a lot of parents struggle with seeing their kids spending what they they feel like is way too much time on their phone to the point where they just can't put it down you know they're at the dinner table and they can't put mm-hmm. it down to look at to look you in the eye and have a conversation with you so i know that some parents will take really drastic measures to to try to help solve what they what they see as a problem do you feel like is is there a situation when confiscating all of their electronics is the answer it can be, but again, that's really a conversation that, that any parent is going to want to have with their kid. And it doesn't mean that you have to listen to them in terms of you have to do exactly what they say, but that that needs to be a conversation that you have together. So if, if you do end up taking away all of their devices for a set period of time, that ought to be something that kids understand why that's happening and that agree with you in terms of, of what's going on. And even that is going to itself be informed by what your kids say about why they're why are they texting at the dinner table? What's going on online that they feel like they need to have a connection to? Why are they prioritizing that communication over what's happening right there in that group? And there's probably going to be good reasons for it. Um, again, we see adults doing this kind of thing all the time, pulling out their phones at the dinner table and checking email and so on and so forth. It's not just kids. And when adults do it, we tend to understand that, well, yeah, that might be a little bit rude, but it could be really important. Uh, we just tend not to do that same thing with a, with a child. So, Interesting. again, everything needs to be part of that conversation with your children. I love, I love how you're keeping this so positive. Yeah, because as a parent, you just think, oh, they're spending so much time on their phone. But, you know, just talk to them and, and see why it is that they're spending the time on the phone and what, what sort of activities they're engaging in. Um, obviously there is content out there that, and this, you know, is one of the reasons you would want to talk to your child about this, but there's content out there that 
as parents, we just don't want our children to be exposed to. Um, do you feel like it's a good idea to set up some sort of a block on their electronic device? Is that is that a good idea? What In what circumstances is it a good idea, or in, are there circumstances in which it might not be a good idea? So I think that's also more of an age-based question. So, again, it, it's always an it's complicated answer. And I think with some kids at a younger age level, especially those that are more vulnerable to stumbling into stuff like that, then a blocker could be a really positive addition to parent strategy for regulating media use. I think as kids get older, that becomes a little bit more problematic. And again, that becomes a conversation that you have with them around the kinds of media that they ought to be accessing, why they might want to access that media. And, and again, that shows a level of trust that allows kids to really use their own best judgment as to what's right and wrong. Um, I, I'm not really for uh, filters and blocking, for, especially for, for teenage children, because really we want them to be using their best judgment. They need to know that those spaces are out there and that they can accidentally find them. And really you want to move to a strategy that's more along the lines of, well, did you see something that made you upset? And if you did, I'm here to listen to you and, and help you navigate what it is that you just saw, more so than blocking kids from spaces online and then punishing them when they actually end up there. I love that. You know, that's such a great thought because really it, it seems like years ago the conversation would be, you know, if if this happens, but really now it's when this happens, when you see this or when you mm-hmm. hear this. They need to know that you are – they're in a safe place that they can they can come to you with this information and, and confide in you. And if – I guess if you're having that extreme reaction, you know, like you said, getting them in trouble, then they're probably going to be less likely to come to you when they do have that issue. Exactly. And with, in my conversation with kids about these exact kinds of problems um, – you do find that one of the big issues that they face when, when you ask them about the risks and the, the problems that they're having, one of those things is, well, you know, I ended up in this space online and I didn't really mean to be there and I'm not interested in consuming this media, but now I don't have anyone to talk to because I'm afraid that if I go talk to my parents, they'll just, they'll just re- revoke all of my internet access and I won't be able to go online again. Right. And that's not what they're interested in doing. They want to have a conversation about what they saw. They need help. They want help. Um, but, but again, if they think that they're going to get in trouble, if they think that, that that dialogue isn't open to them, then they're just not going to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, just in closing here, uh, Nathan, I'm interested to know if if the advice that you've given us here today regarding the screen time for our children, does it change at all when we when we ask the question of, what does a healthy uh, screen time? What does healthy screen time look like for adults or in a marriage? Certainly, I mean, again, our lives as adults are just as mediated as children's lives are today. And and again, even with adults, the, the question isn't so much about the technology itself. It's not the technology per se that's really generating all these harmful effects. It's the fact that we need to pay very close attention to our everyday lives and the context in which we use this media. So if we're having problems outside of those technological experiences, often those lead to more problematic technology, technological use. So if we're talking even just of marriage, right, 
uh, it's not so much that there's the access that's the problem, it's that there are problems that lead people into doing things outside of a marriage that, that might be problematic. Right. Well, Nathan, we really appreciate you here uh, being on the show with us today and uh, really shedding some more light on screen time and maybe uh, getting rid of some of the myths that we have about screen time and and, uh, helping us to understand uh, how our relationships should be with our children. Coming up next on the show, we're going to be speaking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show here in just a few minutes. This is Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. We're about to have the time of our lives right now as we head over to Spencer and Jerem of BYU Sports Nation fame. And uh, we're going to see if they understand why we're playing this song. Spencer and Jerem, how are you doing? Fantastic. Very nice. We're at Lavelle Edwards Stadium, bro. Woo! So you're having the time of your life. We think so. Today's the countdown finale. (laughs) And is today the 30-year anniversary of Dirty Dancing? That is correct. And I I told Cole during the break that I had a little bit of a confession to make to the two of you. I have never (laughs) seen... Not for us. I have never seen Dirty Dancing. Uh, You know what? It's it's a classic, but you're going to be all right. Have you seen it, Jerem? Yeah. I have seen it. I don't know that I've watched it from start to finish in order, but it's been on TV so many times. It sounds like my reading of the Bible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you should talk to your bishop about that, too. <laughs> Save that there's, for the clergy. There's some interesting parts there. <laughs> yeah, never seen it. Great cast. Jerry Orbach, Jennifer Grey, Patrick Swayze. You buried the lead there. Jeez. Um. No, I. I. Who did I say last? Patrick Swayze. I say you. Bro? Say you saved the Rest best. In peace, you dog. saved the best for last. Seventy-two on Rotten Tomatoes. Ooh. Oh, okay. It's fresh because sixty plus is fresh. I don't know what kind of tomatoes you consume, but I want tomatoes <laughs> that are like eighty plus. Yeah. Plus a, if if you were handed a tomato that was like sixty-five percent fresh, you'd be like, nah, that's thirty-five percent so, spoiled. To me, if it's considered a classic, uh, but I'm able to miss it, then it's not really a classic. It's a cult classic. There you go. Or something. There you go. I would much rather see Jennifer Grey in uh, Ferris Bueller's yes. Day Off. Yeah. She was fantastic in that movie. Oh, yeah. How about, how about she did both those movies? That's pretty good. Like, she's an 80s icon. Yeah. Yeah. For one of those movies, let alone two. Mm-hmm. So, uh, before we get to what's coming up on your show... No, let's keep talking about Dirty Dancing. No, no, we won't. Um, <laughs> that can be taken out of context, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I just want to share some numbers with you here that I'm sure you're going to be familiar with. A certain team has crossed the 90-win mark. Oh, wow. Yep. At a historic rate. Yep. It's exciting. The Aren't LA you excited? Dodgers. The L.A. Dodgers. Stoya smiles all over the face in the dugout last night. Oh, yeah. I the just... last one I saw was Adrian Gonzalez after uh, he did his latest greatest thing. Celebrate it now because you never know what happens in the postseason. Spoken the like Mariners a true fan. Mariners fan. Yes. I know. It's... Just enjoy every moment. Hey, they could make it still. The Mariners are, are kind of there. Yeah, they're half game back. Yeah. We're in it. 
You know, uh, that's kind of the goal. Just be in it. I just purchased my uh, airfare for my guys weekend in Southern California. And if the Dodgers can just make it to the uh, National League Championship, then I can go see them on October 14th in L.A. I'll be there. I'll be there the week before. October oh, so you'll seventh. I'm going to go to game two. Ooh, who do you think they're going to be playing? Either the Rockies or the Diamondbacks. I don't know. The, the, Rock, the, the Rockies, one game plan. The Rockies are a little scary. The Rockies are a little bit scary. Oh, the Dodgers game. always seem to have trouble with the Rockies. Yes, yes. That altitude, all that running in the outfield. <laughs> They've rigged the humidor. Okay, the humidor. So now you're telling us that you're coming live from Lavelle Edwards yes, Stadium. This is the tradition. Yes. Uh, day before, we're at the stadium. If it's Friday game, we like to do, you know, we'll be here for the Boise State game day as well, October 6th. Can we just pick some other Fridays too? Because I know. It's fun to this be is, at the stadium. I know. We love it so much. The view is amazing. Okay, so we do this countdown to uh, the Vikings. Every day we count down how many days until BYU plays Portland State. Hey, man, it's tomorrow. So we're shooting confetti off. We've done this four years in a row. It's an absolute mess. Yeah, we listen, I'm looking at the shop vac that's ready to clean this up right now. <laughs> it was picked up at Home Depot this morning just to make sure it was ready. Wow. So uh, rigid. Do you have uh, Do you have your cougar tail all ready to go? Nope. I've got my premier protein uh, one gram of sugar chocolate shake, though. Ooh. Yeah, right? Do they sell that at the concession stands? No. Oh, man. There's this cool Coming club. 2024. There's this cool club called Costco. Uh, if you're cool enough to get a membership card, then you can get in. Buy them in bulk. I always feel mm. like such an important person. Right. When I walk in there, right. flash, I'm like, yeah, I'm yeah. a member of this yes. not exclusive club whatsoever. Yeah, I feel that way when I go and buy the $1.50 hot dog. Oh, dude. I'm like, I can afford this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going there after the show, actually. Yeah, baby. Cheap lunch. So what else are you going to be talking about? It's loaded. We've got ESPN's Trevor Maddich, who will be the analyst on the game for ESPN. Future BYU Sports Nation host and former Super Bowl champion tight end Dennis Pitta will join us as well. What's the latest and greatest uh, in his life? He's dealing with another Is he retired? heartbreaking we, injury. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah, we're going to get the latest from Dennis Pitta. I mean... <laughs> At the time, he had the most receiving receptions of any tight end in NCAA receiving history. Yards. Receiving By yards, a tight end. yeah, yeah, and crazy, amazing. He was he's really good. He was a way better tight end than broadcaster. Also, we'll have a Leva Hefo, a wide receiver on the team. Uh, Two on one conversation with him. What does yeah. he expect from the wide receivers this year? Yes, his nickname is Alevitate. A levitate. Yeah, pretty cool, right? Yeah. Dubbed by Squally Canada, the starting running back. Well, Spencer and Jerem, that show sounds more loaded than the protein shake that you've got in front oh, of you right there. One gram oh, of sugar, but 30 grams of protein. There you go. Well, it's going to be a great show, and uh, we hope you have a, a wonderful time this weekend. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thanks, Hef. Goodbye. <laughs> what a send-off, right? Cole, is there anything we missed on the Dirty Dancing uh, 30th anniversary that you'd like to talk about? Technically, the 30th anniversary was earlier this week. I don't want people to think that we got our dates wrong. Okay. But this is the week that we... I think it deserves a whole week of celebration because it is a classic that I enjoy every time I go back to watch it. Okay. So... I think the thing that we a... really missed is that I wasn't here yesterday to celebrate the fact that my pirates were able to beat your Dodgers despite oh. a valiant effort by we did talk a certain about pitcher. That. I mean, 
That that's so frustrating. That's so that's so Josh sad. Harrison though. Think about the joy in his heart. Not a single member of his team had been able to get on base for nine whole innings. He steps up in the tenth and just sends it into the stands. Right, but I think as a pirate, I would be more excited for somebody to potentially throw a perfect game. Then to against win it, me, then to win a game that is not going to get you into the playoffs anyway. Mm. They're not. They're not going to make it. Come I on. know, but <laughs> this was pretty cool, and I was watching. So again, for a fan to watch for nine innings of what baseball critics call the sport being boring, like they point to games like that. Yeah. Um, and then in the tenth inning to get that kind of joy and just. Shoo, I, I I sensed it was coming. I had a feeling it was going to happen. And I can't believe that they chose that one game to not get a run. Yeah, because their bats have been pretty good this season. And it's not like the Pirates pitching was really doing they had, they a had lot of favors. Like eight or ten hits or something. Uh-huh. They just couldn't get anybody home. Yep. Anyway, uh, really quickly, we want to give you our panning for good segment of the day. And uh, it kind of goes along with what we've been talking about. There's good in them there hills. We try to do our best to help you find the good in entertainment, the very best that you can enjoy with your family. And there are other companies and shows that that they try to do that as well. We have the privilege of talking to one of those guests Every every other week or so, and his name is Rod Gustafson of Parent Previews, there are other companies like Common Sense Media and Kids in Mind where you can log on to the website and figure out exactly what's in that movie that might be objectionable for your family so that you can go into a movie better informed or maybe you just decide you're going to skip that one or see it without the kids. So I have a lot of respect for these types of companies and these types of shows, and we really try to do the same thing here on Screen Cleaning. We're here every Friday to help you do just that, and we'll be back next Friday with more fun to give you the best in entertainment in an entertainment entertaining way here on Screen Cleaning. <laughs>